I have no need to listen to the Order 66 podcast because I have already commended its execution. But the knowledge contained in the core rulebook which you possess will be most valuable. It is unavoidable. You and your core rulebook are now mine. This is Antoine, and I never listen. Well, I have a terrible secret. Is I do listen. I've listened to every one of your shows. And I'm so ashamed to say, say this, but I really love it. Anyway, bye. This is Jose Starkiller. I never listen to the show podcast. We don't need no stinking podcast. This episode of the Order 66 podcast brought to you by the generous donations of Kevin Malone, Donald Weller, B. Witzel, Andy Bethel, Darren Hampton, Trevor Hill, and William Sullivan, as well as lots of viewers and listeners like you. Broadcast live, you're listening to the Order 66 podcast. Brought to you by Gamer Nation Studios, D20 Radio, and Wayne Basta, author of the Aristia series of novels. What's up, Gamer Nation? GM Chris here, and for those tuning in for the first time, this is the Order 66 podcast, the original podcast entirely devoted to Star Wars role-playing, and you're tuning in for episode 60 here on August 23rd, 2015, and I am joined by my erstwhile co-hosts, the GMs who PM me constantly with cool show ideas, uh, my buddies Dave and Phil. What's up, dudes? Not much, not much. How are you doing today, Chris? I'm good, and that was dudes with a D-O-O, like dudes, not dudes, yes. it's dudes. Actually, they were probably, they sounded like they were more like zero zero. Dude, oh yeah, like, hey dudes, want to ride bikes? Yeah, that kind of, yeah. Right. Totally, totally. <laughs> How are you today? Hey guys, how's it going, man? What's up, dude? Dave is blow. What's up, my bras? <laughs> I'm going to stand over here with all my other bras, and we're just going to stand here being bras. Being bras? Right. Yeah, bra. that, that's cool. Bra. 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 I don't think anyone's ever called me bra. Yeah, no. Not seriously at any rate. No, not in any seriousness. I, I count I count my blessings. That's a good thing. That's a very good thing. Um, so, man, we had, a, we had a surprisingly interesting show last week. <laughs> I, uh, apparently... Apparently, and, and you, the listeners, uh, apparently enjoyed the hell out of it. Yeah. yeah, who thought that the Lars Farm could be so interesting? <laughs> <laughs> you know what Phil did? <laughs> uh, 
I, I wasn't the only one. We, uh, we, we have a big thanks to, um, to Richard Buxton for suggesting that, uh, suggesting a question for, uh, for the developers of the last book. So important that uh, we felt that we should devote, devote a show to it, and uh, we ended up devoting two shows to it. This is the second one that you're listening to right now. We're going to continue this topic of discussion from last uh, last time, and um, have our base build off, and hopefully it will be as as entertaining as the last one. One can hope, but it's like even the oh, devs, base. even the devs found last show interesting, as we'll get to in a bit. Um, the actual dev responsible for the creation of Homestead rules had quite a bit to say about it, so we'll we'll come to that, but. Um, I want to get to it, so do you guys want to maybe get into some uh, announcements, kick this show off, Papa? I think so. Yeah, right, man. All right, all right, man. Sounds good, Papa. Okay, dudes, let's do it. Yeah. Hello there. What have we here? Good news. What we got? So, after many, 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 many weeks of waiting, the fans of our most entertaining live play podcast, The Gathering of Dorks, rejoiced. Because you know why? Why? They're back. Well, they've, they've been back. Well, I know. But the boys returned to play some of their long running run through of D&D 5E's Horde of the Dragon Queen. They're back to D&D. D&D. Yeah. So their 10th director's cut episode dropped last week with part 7 of the Horde of the Dragon Queen. Hilarious, irreverent, and as always, awesome. So go take a listen. Like right after this show's over. Yeah. What he said. Yeah. And you'll find this, of course, in many other great podcasts at dub dub triple dub www.d20radio.com. Oh, very nice. And uh, moving on to Fantasy Flight game news. Uh, as you definitely know by now, Force and Destiny is out, and we are digging the hell out of this book. We're digging it so much that we've already announced on our forums and on FFG's forums. That uh, RPG manager and lead developer of Force and Destiny, Sam Stewart, will be rejoining the Order 66 podcast next Thursday, September 3rd. So not this Thursday, next Thursday. Oh, yeah. Mr. Stewart will be joining us for a special live show at 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. And we will be going heavy and hard into our and your questions for Force and Destiny. Now, the cutoff date for getting your questions into that show is August 27th. We need to give Sam and Fantasy Flight Games a week's leeway to prep and vet the show notes. So, go over to Order 66 Podcast Boards at d20radio.com slash forums or the Force and Destiny RPG boards at fantasyflightgames.com in the role-playing game section and leave your questions there. We will get to as many of them as we possibly can, but please, please, please... Do not ask, ask for a PDF. any questions about oh, future PDFs or about what their plans are for future books. He can't answer those questions. 
He I, won't answer those questions. I got so. I, I got into a PM argument with somebody at FFG forums because they asked a question like this, and I'm like, and I PM like, you know, hey, this is a good question, but I really, you know, just to let you know, we're not gonna be able to ask that because he can't answer. Well, you can at least ask him. I'm like, like no, no, we can't. I literally can't. And even if I just broke protocol and did, he would just say no comment. It would waste airtime, brah. <laughs> See, I just used the word brah. <laughs> that's a dude who gets the word brah. <laughs> that's a dude. That's a dude who gets the word brah. So yeah, <laughs> it's 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 there. But I'm so excited about this show, and I'm so excited to have Sam back on. Oh, it's going to be a fun show. Real fun. Real real deep. Get your questions in type of show. <sighs> uh, and other than that, that's that's pretty much it. Uh, we're in a little bit of a lull with Fantasy Flight Games news, but uh, Chronicles of the Gatekeeper is coming very soon. Uh, actually, no, they did have a um, – I forgot. They did have a uh, uh, another news article about it highlighting the planet and the new avian species that they're introducing. Oh, I missed uh, that. This is going to be a first because they're actually introducing it as a playable race in this book. What? Yeah. Full stats for player characters. Dodd. Dang it! I gotta buy it then. <laughs> oh, I've always been bought. I've always bought their books. Uh, you know, never mind the fact that I'm a Jedi uh, Jedi file, I guess, about these things. But uh, no, their adventure books have always been solid. Yeah, they have. Man, hey, do you know? I don't think they have. Have they released a release date for Stronghold yet? No, that's com- but that's on the boat. That's on the boat as of four weeks ago. So if they're on a usual six week schedule, we should be getting it maybe before, maybe after next show. Yeah, I'm going to guess September the 14th. That's a yeah. wise guess. 15th. That sounds about that sounds feasible. That's a wise guess. Wise guess, wise guess. But of course, guys, head to fantasyflightgames.com to check constantly for new news and announcements and uh, releases. And while you're in the browsing mood, of course, head to d20radio.com to check out the best gaming blog and blue milk delivery service in the outer rim. d20radio.com remains your source for the best gaming advice, articles, reviews, and fan-generated content on the web or nets, all written by members of the Gamer Nation, just like you. Um, this past week, a couple highlights. Our very own GM Brev um, offers up an amazing retrospective article highlight, um, which really deals with the ins and outs of 5th edition D&D, um, as he's starting to fall head over heels into that system um, and discuss how much he's enjoying it. And if you really kind of want to lay down of the basics of the system and what differentiates it if you haven't played it before, um, great, great article to read. Um, also, I'm very excited because our amazing editor-in-chief, Wayne Basta, lays out the first in a new stupendous article series called Rogue Squadron. And this article series, which is the first episode he just laid out, just dropped, is all about different squadrons that you can fly in the X-Wing miniatures game. Nice. He puts them together. He explains what the different ships are, how they synergize together. It is brilliant. And if you're interested in X-Wing at all, go check it out. And you can find all this and a whole lot more right now at www.d20radio.com. So, is is stupendous. Um, and while you're over there um, at D20 Radio, you'll find a nice little link on the left-hand side of the page uh, for our Patreon. Uh, many fans of D20 Radio and all of our shows, as well as the Order 66 podcast you are listening to, have been showing their support for the network and our blog by contributing just literally a few dollars a month on our Patreon site at patreon.com slash D20 Radio. Or you can just head to D20 Radio and click on the big Patreon button. And help us out, guys. It literally keeps the lights on, it keeps the servers humming, but most importantly, gets our blog authors paid for their work. 
And we also have a brand new contribution level, uh, which is GM Chris's secret secret stash. If you've got 10 bucks a month burning a hole in your pocket and you really want to support D20 Radio and gain access to a super secret private Twitter account run by moi, an account where I will at least three times a week post my gaming brain droppings, uh, Star Wars news, tips, and other gaming ideas, you can be a part of that exclusive club. Just this past week, um, I dropped um, a free RPG download on this group, as well as some free GM Chris-generated content for another free RPG, which uh, uh, those fine backers are making use of. I'm just saying. Oh. I'm just saying. So I'm not saying. I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. So there is that. Yes. Yeah. All right. So stay in the know. Follow mm. D20 Radio on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter mm. at D20 Radio, at GM Phil, at GM Dave, or at, the, at, at Darth GM. That's true. At GM That's Chris. True. Yes. Lots of different places. We post and tweet show info usually pretty regularly. Yes, we do. Um, apparently, I flubbed and forgot to tweet the show announcement for this week, although we did Facebook it. So, um, And it's on the forums, of course. So apologies for that. Um, but hey, it's there. It was a busy week. It was a busy week. It was. It was. It was a very busy week. Well, I want to get to the meat of the show and continue our discussion, but first, I really think we have to stop down for just precisely 53 seconds um, for maybe a look at, uh, I don't know, uh, SWRPG Adventures, the most informative 140 characters on the internet. Yeah? Marvelous. Maybe maybe an adventure of the week? Yeah? Yeah? Okay. Okay. We'll 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 do that. <laughs> Welcome to Star Wars Adventures of the Week, brought to you by SWRPG Adventures on Twitter this week. A shadowy group of slicers offer services to the Rebel Alliance for a price, but they've never hired themselves out before. What are they really after? This has been Star Wars Adventures of the Week, brought to you by SWRPG Adventures. For more adventure ideas in 140 characters or less, be sure to follow SWRPG Adventures on Twitter. And remember, keep adventuring! Dun-dun. What if, like, Anonymous contacted the Rebel Alliance and they're like, we want to work for you? It's like, really? Um, huh. <laughs> Sketchy. Sketchy. With the, yeah, that's, that's very, very interesting. I'm, hmm, I don't know. Hmm. Well, good stuff. Um, do you guys want to get to our meat? That would base, be awesome. Base, base, base. Base? Ace of base. Drop the base. It is. Yo. Drop it. What is thy bidding, my master? Where is the rebel base? Because you know I'm all about that base, about that base, no trouble. I'm all about that base, about that base, no trouble. I'm all about that base, about that base, no trouble. I'm all about that base, about that base, 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 base. Oh, you're base, you're base, base, base. Oh, you're base. The 
belong to us. All your base, your base, base, base. All your base, belong to us. I'm sad. That's the last time we're going to get to play that. <laughs> Aw. Forever. Legit- yeah, legitimately. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not necessarily. Maybe not. That's true. And we maybe we'll maybe we'll get Keep to that. Keep that in your back pocket, because maybe in about a year, a year and a half or two, we may have a reason to play that again sometime. May- maybe. Maybe we can maybe we can speculate on what that might be. Maybe. Uh, yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. maybe. As he holds his finger to the corner of his mouth. Hmm. Uh. So, so yes. Oh, yeah. What are we doing today, Chris? What? What? The uh, base in your face. That's right. Tonight we continue our prior episode discussion of homesteads, businesses, and bases. Last episode, we began a lengthy dive into this amazing set of party resources, inspired by a question from Richard Buxton during our Desperate Allies review with Max Brook. This great question was so good, we decided to make it an entire show topic, but quickly realized that the topic was simply massive. So after some deliberation, we decided to split up our mega two-parter, tackling the holdings provided in Far Horizons first, that being homesteads and businesses, and then we will dive today deep into bases and have our GM build-off competition. As mentioned, tonight is part two of our holdings discussion, Gamer Nation. We're going to put it all together with Rebel Bases and then put our advice to the task. So stow your Rebel supplies tightly, activate the automated turret, and race to the training hall as we get all your base in your face on tonight's Order 66 podcast. Oh, yeah. But- and we're going to start off with the retcon. <laughs> before we get started, yes. before, before we get started, we have, we have some retcon. Um, we have we have three pieces of retcon, and I, you know what? There are three hosts, so I think this works out rather well. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, why don't I take the first one? Because uh, that was kind of all on me. Um, our vigilant listeners were quick to point out that we made a big misspeak when talking about gaining a homestead or business after party creation, when buying it, not when choosing it as a party resource. Right, right. We kept saying that the basic homestead or business would cost the party 50,000 credits or five obligation. This is incorrect, and we want to be sure that we clarify. Uh, it's actually both. <laughs> uh, to gain a homestead or business, if chosen after party generation and not as your initial party resource, it costs 50,000 credits and five party obligation. Okay? Okay. okay. Basically, the cost as an initial party resource, like a ship, with some obligation thrown in. Yeah. So So keep that in mind if you're picking it up afterwards. It's 50,000 credits and five party obligation. Yeah. Otherwise, carry on. And uh, unless you're talking about one of the other two areas where we uh, made a mistake. Yeah, well, these are kind of – one of them is not a mistake at all, and one of them is sort of not even close to a mistake. But I don't know. It's like, Dave, talk to us about income streams because this is important. You mentioned this, I believe, as well to me after the show. Hey man, like income streams are like totally like important. You know why? Why? Well, <clears throat> you know if you go back and listen to fifty nine, we we talked a lot about the income stream and how you can earn income, and we use some words like every session, and that's under the assumption you have a month between sessions and game time, right? All so right. to clarify. The rules say that this income happens 
for each PC every month. This means every month of game time. So you as a GM want to take that into account and hold it against uh, your party expectations. I've run campaigns, you know, where, you know, two or three days of game time passes between sessions. You know, I've been in campaigns with you where the entire freaking campaign was it was taking place in about three months of real time. Yeah. So it's basically if your party's expecting income every single session, then you need to reset those expectations or, or lengthen the end game time between your sessions, you know, just FYI. Yeah. I swear I mentioned in the notes that it was per month of gameplay. You did, mm. but you did. You you absolutely did. It was very clear in the notes. It was just we just kinda glossed over it. We we kinda we kinda glossed over it to it and, and I know like when Dave and I we were listening to it later on and it was kinda like I think it was either I think it may have been me who said, you know, that way you can get this income each session, you know? And I just, oh, I just, okay. yeah, yeah, I just, I just want to make sure that that is crystal clear. Yeah. Um, now, our third piece of retcon is not really a piece of retcon. Um, this is kind of interesting. Let's talk a little bit about designer at- intent. <laughs> okay. Um, this is not retcon from last episode because what I'm about to tell you is not official in any way, shape, or form. But it is interesting to note. So last episode, we talked about, you guys recall, the improved security upgrade for homesteads. Sure. We talked about, we commented how it was unusual that there were four options for a security upgrade, but the book said you could only ever take three of them. You guys remember that? Well, following the release of episode 59, Keith Kappel, um, FFG freelancer and friend of the show, who's been on multiple times, actually wrote the rules for homesteads. Um, He actually mentioned to me that the original intent of the improved security upgrade was for a homestead to be able to take each security option one time. Um, at least, Keith says, that is the original intent. Now, Keith and we are also ve- were very quick to point out that FFG's playtesting and their final run-through and design could have changed that completely. And that mm-hmm. the rules as written does say you can only take this upgrade three times. And until we get an official ruling from FFG to the contrary, that is the way it works, rules as written. But we thought you guys would might like to know that the man who literally designed and wrote these rules... Originally, Keith Cabell wanted to inform us of his original intent as well as his opinion as a developer and an experienced GM that allowing a homestead to take all four security upgrades once wouldn't break anything. So So in a nutshell, screw the real rules. I wrote them better. No, he actually said the opposite of that. Oh, okay. Okay. To be be very clear, he said the exact opposite of that. Um, Yeah. Yes. (laughs) The writer doesn't see any problems with it, but perhaps, perhaps the company did. Perhaps the company and the playtesting did. And Keith was very clear on that point. He said he said it was interesting. And just to let you know, this was the original intent of the rules. He said, yeah, maybe it was a misprint, or maybe they do what they often do, and they playtest and bear it out, and they change it. He says that happens all the time. He says, you know, but just to let you mean, in my opinion, I don't think it would break anything. So I thought that was interesting note. So if you have any GMs out there that are thinking about house ruling it and allowing for all four security upgrades, the writer of that rule says he thinks it's an okay idea even though it's not official and not FFG rules is written. Just saying. So, yay. I thought it was nice to get that communication from him. Very nice. Very nice. Very nice. But let's talk out of retcon and let us get into the bases. Let's. <laughs> Which is French for bases. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Any of you watching on our uh, watching the home game on our special exclusive video stream would see this giant flashing thing at the bottom. Not actually French. Oh, no. Not oh. actually French. <laughs> I'm gonna get hate mail from French listeners. I just know it. <laughs> but then they'll surrender, so it's not a big deal. Um, 
Do we have any listeners from Quebec? I don't know. They don't count. I'm sure they will fire forth spit and, and, and ire at us for that. I don't know. No, I don't think I don't the think they care. I don't think they care for the French either, Phil. Yeah. <laughs> All right. They're sure. like the they're like the bastard stepchildren. Yeah, we, I'll put it we with, have to claim I think, our lineage think, from there, but we think, don't really uh, accept them. I think they like France as much as the majority of mainstream Canadians like uh, the English. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. But bases. 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 Um, all right. So continuing last week's discussion, we now move from Far Horizons to Desperate Allies, jumping from Edge of the Empire to Age of Rebellion. You will find the rules that we are talking about tonight in Desperate Allies, starting on page 86. Oh. Uh, and they're really kind of buried in there and surprising. It's like, do-do-do-do-do, you're reading through diplomats, all kinds of stuff, and all of a sudden, boom, rebel base rules. Um, the basics. For an Age of Rebellion campaign, or at least a campaign that's heavily involved with striking out against the Empire, the players may become interested in establishing a rebel base. Uh, especially, uh, as they're alluding to in the book, diplomat characters may be interested in negotiating with planetary governments and, and establishing a, a full-on rebel base to strike out against the Empire. Totally. Uh, you need to consider what sort of facility that you wish to establish for your group, though. Different groups are going to want different things. Um, take a con- uh, look into consideration for where the base is going to be located in relation to its role. It's going to be very difficult to set up in a, a training camp on a heavily urbanized world like Nar Shaddaa or Coruscant. Uh, but who knows? Maybe you can figure out a way and make it possible. Um, also, likewise, a meeting house type location would be very difficult to set up on a very isolated planet. It's going to, you're going to want it to be someplace where at least there's some sort of regular travel or traffic to make such a meeting house and uh, an investment in such that how uh, such a place worth it and worthwhile. Did you yeah. say a mating house? Meeting house. Oh. Meeting. Okay. Okay. Establishing a base isn't always as simple as just selecting it as a reward and dropping it on some planet. Uh, you're going to have to work hard to keep the base a secret and enlist the aid of locals who are sympathetic to the Alliance to really help you in doing that. This constant vigilance will likely lead to the occasional need to meet and entreat with local governments to help support Alliance operations. Mm. This, is, this is a very different thing than homesteads and, and businesses. I think it's really worth noting. Yes, Homesteads and businesses, well, maybe not so much homesteads, but definitely businesses is all about folks knowing that you're there. Yeah. Um, um. Rebel bases are not. <laughs> they, they, they are secret spy facilities. They are hidden military bases. And they, are, they have that air of once discovered by the Empire, the Empire can just show up in force and hammer you into nothing. Yeah. So the, as we'll talk about later on, the first line of defense when it comes to a base protection is secrecy. Okay, okay. So once I've got this down, and I know we want to do it, and we've got these things yep. in our heads. I mean, Dave, last episode, we talked about how to buy a business and how to really buy a homestead and buy into that. When I'm establishing a base, how much does it cost? How do, how do I buy into it? Like 50 grand. Dude. Totally. Oh, are you talking about a rebel base? Yes, one of those. Oh, wait, no. You can't really buy one, dude. <laughs> you know, I mean, what, what, what are you going to do? Like, walk up to some dude and say, hey, by the way, we, we'd like to establish a, a training camp here with a 
a starfighter hangar, and we're going to launch attacks against the currently recognized government. Hey, we've got 50,000 credits. Do you have anything secluded, maybe, in the mountains? Or maybe, you know, any abandoned factory warehouses? <laughs> I can just imagine the realtor. <laughs> um, yes. One moment. Wait here. I'm just going to make phone call. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, yeah, I said 50,000 kind of in jest earlier. But, I mean, that's what it takes for homestead and businesses. But, um you know, you, you drop down 50,000 in credits and poof, you've got yourself a holding, right? Uh, Rebel Base is not so much, you know. I mean, that's, yeah, it's a nice little anecdotal story. But, you know, Rebel Bases are either selected as the starting resource for the party, you know, instead of a ship, or they're granted to the PCs as a reward for reaching a contribution rank. <sighs> but, of course, there's always GM Fiat. So gaining a base is a part of a story, for example. You might get something small. Uh, maybe they capture a stronghold in battle, and you narratively uh, build a base from scratch, etc. You know, okay. You never know. Rikoshi's in chat. This place is kind of cozy, but it's got gun turrets, and it's perfect for launching assault against the ruling regime. <laughs> See, <laughs> That's what I'm talking about right there. Signs up, Rebel Base for sale, cheap. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We found it on the Holonet. Uh, you know, so. Once they can, once they establish the base, though, then they can decide what you know facility or service the base is going to provide to the alliance. So it can be a core base, you know. It can be a, you know, think think smaller version of Hoth or or Yavin, like you know, just a classical rebel base gotcha. that provides uh, rack space for the for the party, basic utilities, uh, NPC to help with the administration of the base. If, if it's on a space station, the landing bay is big enough to handle the party's vehicles. Maybe it's a safe house, you know, a small base that's in enemy territory, usually houses secure communication facilities and helps provide storage for weapons and contraband that you're running across enemy lines. Hmm. Or, you know, like you said before, it's your Hoth training camp. You know, it's it's uh, it's environmentally challenging, which you need in a training camp. And, so you know, it's designed to train new recruits to fight against the Empire. Woo! Let's go storm the castle. But, of course, it's very dependent on upgrades to fulfill its intended role. You'll need to take the training facility upgrade ASAP, as well as additional upgrades to direct, you know, what kind of training the base is going to do. Is it going to be vehicle operations? So you need a hangar bay. Is it heavy weapons? You'll need armory. You know, what What about commando units? Mm. Uh, if it's going to be... Training engineers, you might need research wars or laboratories, you know. So you've got to you've got to come up with that kind of in the storyline, right? Sure. And of course, you could go with a meeting center. It is in the diplomat source book. Yes, mm-hmm. indeed. Diplomats and provocateurs. This is a secret location where groups can meet discreetly with one another. You know. Get a little another little separatist group there that opposes the Empire. Let's have a little sit down. You know, it doesn't always have to be the humans in the silence. Hey, <laughs> hey, let's let's plan an attack against the opposing regime. What do you say? That's right. Huh? right. Uh, I'm I'm, inter- I'm interested in taking down the legally recognized government. What do you say? Huh? Yeah. Huh? Hey, I'd like I'll to show subscribe you. To your I'll show you my full card if you show you if you show me yours. <laughs> And now, those are just the four examples that are given in the Desperate Allies book. There are other things that you could come up with um i i got one what do you got do you what do you got go the shipyard 
Interesting. Okay, what is it? Uh, so, like, a place likely d- a disguised junkyard or a space station that serves just primarily as a refuel supply uh, and support depot for other rebel ships, for rebel ships. Um, kind of like a waypoint uh, for members of the rebellion to sat to safely take their boats. It's almost like a safe house in that sense. Um, but, but it doesn't. But for vehicles, and it doesn't need to be in enemy territory. It can be, you know, safely outside of a primary trade route, maybe hidden as a junk dealership. But the bottom line is, the rebels got to move around, and they got to have a place to maintain, refuel, and hide ships. Nice. Um, and especially if you're running, um, if if you have a lot of if you have a lot of aces in the camp in your in your campaign, um, it could it could be, and you're going to be doing a lot of a lot of star fighting. I think it could be a good option. Very nice. Anything else? What else, guys? Any other ideas? I've got, I have an idea, like um, a, a system of caves on an ice planet um, with some guns and, and a fusion generator. Yeah, okay. Well, you've described it, but what type of facility is that? That sounds like a core base to me. Oh, dang it. Yeah, it is. Shit. What about a listing post? Oh. Hey, communications and stuff. That's pretty good. Yep. I like that. Yep. Have a, you can be right smack dab in the middle of a major metropolitan area, a place that is just... Gathering intelligence. Like the NSA. Kind of, kind of. Now, someone could say it's like a safe house, but it's not really because it's actually an active facility. It is is an intelligence gathering facility that is sending data to the Rebel Alliance so that they can make strikes against the Empire. It is a good idea. See, there's all kinds of stuff. Manufacturing facility somewhere? You absolutely could. And you know that the Alliance needs it. I mean, they can't get all their weapons legitimately from established... Uh, weapon manufacturers, so they absolutely would have to have uh, construction and, and facilities for even small arms. Yeah, I think that's another good that one. Up a great on, one. At, in Theed. Theed is a good place. I like yeah. Theed. I like Theed because of how it sounds. You can get a lot of the uh, raw materials there. Yes. Mm. Now, one of the things that I think is interesting, why we can play around with this a lot, is because uh, there's a few key differences at, at, at this point, you know, calling a slight audible here, when you're establishing a base versus a homestead or business. This holding is a bit different in the fact that a homestead or a business, just the mere act of having it will give your party a bonus career skill. That is not the case for bases. Um, and it, it's it's one of those things that, as a result, I think you can be a lot... And that 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 bonus career skill for for homesteads and businesses is determined by what what its type is you know what i mean yeah not so much for a base so i think there's a lot more freedom and flexibility that a gm and a party can have to define a really unusual focus for a base does that make sense right because you're not you're not there isn't that sort of mechanical desire to say okay let's get a cool let's get a cool career scale out of this let's kind of steer the focus towards that and we can we can adapt to it precisely um, precisely the beautiful thing about this is once you establish a core focus there's no reason why you can't branch off into other areas yeah, i mean no if reason. you really want to if you build a core base you you absolutely could have um you know a labor a research library there you could have a training facility there you could increase its status and stature and importance within the rebel alliance beyond its original intention and, and i like how this base can grow as organically as the PCs can. And this is interesting. So let's, let's talk about that growth, um, sure. as, as well as how to actually get, perhaps, a career skill out of your base. Let's, let's, mm. get, let's get into upgrades and improvements, because I think, I think there's more... Well, first of all, if you look at the list, uh, if you do the book comparison, there's a lot more Rebel base improvements than different improvements for homesteads and businesses combined, okay? 
Right. There's like a metric ton of rebel base improvements. And it's almost like the rebel base gets the, to could draw from the best and almost the entirety of the homestead and the uh, the business lists. This with, with a few changes. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. It's true, but but you know that's that's really awesome. But it doesn't mean that bases are necessarily better because getting these improvements for a base is a lot harder. Yeah, it is because um, you don't have access to you don't have access to obligation. No, no. I mean, like homesteads or businesses, you can buy upgrades, sure, or you can just take some party obligation and be done with it, and that's it. Yeah. Here to get an upgrade, an improvement to a rebel base, you got to drop the cash or use a full-on contribution rank award. Yeah. Now, sometimes it's a little But it's not just one for one. I mean, you don't just level up and say, "Well, you get one upgrade." The, okay, you're okay, well, you're you're right. How does that work then? <clears throat> um, I it it and I don't remember off the top of my head, but I believe it's up to the level at which you are now. So if you, as you move up, you get more upgrades. You're 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 spot on. It's like when when the party increases their contribution rank and they already have a base, they can instead of the normal contribution award, they can select like a number of upgrades, a, a total number of upgrades as their award that's equal to their current contribution rank. I think to a max of five. Yeah. Um, and those upgrades are applied to their base. So yeah, it's not like you know you as a I mean because contribution ranks are things like ships. Okay. So it's not like as a contribution rank, we're going to get a turret on our base. <laughs> you know. No, you, you, you but laugh, it fires but it's... automatically at the door. <laughs> right, right. Well, no, you're saying we, you laugh, but. I was about to say, you laugh, but we'll, we'll get to how turrets come into play with, with bases. But yeah, an automated turret for hitting contribution rank six? Uh, no. No, but, but that's the thing. But you get. But that's the thing. If you hit contribution rank six and you want to do it in base enhancement, you're going to get five full upgrades. I mean, that's. That's, that that could be serious, I mean. You you get yeah. contribution rank three, and suddenly you could throw in a hangar. You could add a hangar bay and repair bay, able to handle sixty silhouettes of vehicles. Yeah, I mean that's huge. That's okay. a lot. So that's a lot. It's that's a like lot. Hoth size. Well, maybe not, but well, it's close. echo. It's echo base size. Yeah, I mean it's big. It, it's real it's, big. It's, it's damn big. So okay, let's okay. We've been we've been beating around it. That's how we get these upgrades. Let's talk about these upgrades. How do we sure. how do we get them? Because uh, we know there's a lot of them. What just what do they do? Well, the first one is to increase the core focus of the rebel base. Just like homesteads, you're increasing the size of the base. Except instead of cash per month that's being earned, um, because you know our rebel base isn't earning you money like a homestead or a business. Uh, if you increase the core focus of a rebel base once per month, you can obtain hard-to-find gear by lowering the rarity of a purchasable item. Um, now, this is huge because I've I've done this a little bit with some of my uh, with some of my groups, and they're trying to find hard-to-find gear, and they're looking at the options of okay, guys, we can either double or triple the cost of this item by using black market contacts and lower the cost, or we can you know try to find out some other way to to get the cost to, to get the uh, the rarity down. Uh, being able to take a rarity nine object down to a rarity four object is huge. It is huge. That's yeah. That that goes from that goes from I can't that find goes from it. Daunting it, to yeah. here. I, I'm sure I've got one in the back. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I mean, you can. Um, I mean, I'm just throwing it out there. I mean, we're talking about lightsaber rarity at that point being oh, yeah. being obtainable once a month. That's yeah. That's huge. There's a re- that's a reason that could increase the core focus up to five. Is yeah. if you have a, a if you have a need for finding hard to find gear, 
hard to find items, replacement thermal detonators or whatnot, or e-web blasters or, or, or specialized starfighters. That's a reason to pick up increased core focus. And it's one of those things. If you talk about a manufacturing facility or a supply depot, some of the more interesting concepts we were talking about right, for a base, right. it really fits. You know, It does. Um, so it, there's there. Um, next up is enhanced security. Basically, you can take the lists that are there for homesteads, the lists that are there for businesses. They're all there to be gained as security upgrades for a base. Plus, you get the option of an automated heavy repeating blaster to guard your door. Um, it can fire on its own, or a PC can take control and can fire it. So, yes. auto turret! <laughs> auto turret! Uh, yeah. D- Dave, do you remember Bood's character in our old Alt-U campaign? Yeah, oh, yeah, he would just set up a turret out of... He could, he could just do auto, he would do auto turret. He had taken a prestige class, and he got to just build an auto turret. He's like, auto turret! <laughs> oh, wow. Um, so, yeah, there's enhanced security. Um, next up, uh, much similar again to bases and homesteads, NPC, NPC ally. Uh, you can, uh, a doctor, a mechanic, or a pilot, your choice. Really, just like homesteads. Listen to the last episode, we really kind of dug into that. Um, apropos to this, one of the other differentiators between um, businesses and homesteads compared to bases is that you don't get a free NPC per PC like you do previously. Yeah. You get one vanilla NPC. Uno. Okay to watch the base and administer things for you guys. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that, depending on the base, the GM can't say that generic base personnel arrive. Of course not. In fact, they should. They should. It just is is that they're kind of grunts. They're predominantly unmemorable. They're kind of there in the background. Not not any reason why you shouldn't give them flavor when the PCs interact with them. But just generally assume that you will have... Um, assistant technicians, grunts, security forces, pit crew type soldiers, that sort of thing, yeah. as the base needs. Obviously, you won't need that for like a safe house. For a safe house, you just need the NPC, yeah. you know, the one that comes to the base, the administrator. Yeah. Same thing with a meeting house. But a training facility, training camp. You're going to have grunts. Core base, shipyard. You're going to have that. You're going uh, to have nameless NPC 587. Mm-hmm. Now, also, just like the NPC allies available for the other holdings, for bases, you can also get a medical facility. However, unlike uh, the infirmary for homesteads, um, for a medical facility in a rebel base has almost twice the capacity and back to tanks, mm-hmm. uh, which is understandable. It's a military facility. Um, but I nice, love the nice. fact that every time you take an upgrade to the medical facility, which you can do up to three more times, yeah, <laughs> uh, you increase the number of patients it can accommodate by five, and the number of back to tanks by one each time. Yeah, dude. Yeah, so you can have what f- three, four back to tanks at that point. Five back to five, yeah, five, five uh, back to no, tanks. four, four. You're right, four. Yeah, four, four. back to tanks. One plus the three. Yeah, so four back yep. to tanks. Oof. Um. Yeah, that's absolutely, absolutely huge. Um. So, uh, medical facility also uh, hangar and repair bay. Uh, you can get a, actually a huge hangar able to handle almost a full squadron of fighters and their droids and the repair facilities to match. So you can keep pretty much a, a small squad squadron of fighters in repair in your facility if you want to. Um, very nice. Uh, you know, if you're much less concerned with space and a lot more concerned with ground support, you can also get an armory 
and this is a storehouse of weapons and military equipment at your disposable at, at your disposal, um, along with the tools needed to keep them in good repair. It's interesting to note this is the only upgrade that has a restricted rating. I know. So very very interesting. Um, you get some interesting role playing scenarios out to try and establish that or purchase it. You know what I mean? Right, and I think that that's just. The reason why it's there is so that you know the the GM can sort of clue in on the fact that, hey, to get this upgrade, the PCs are going to have to do a little more legwork than just boom. I'm I'm going to take this as a as a as an upgrade. Yeah. Um, or for that restricted rating, I could see that the GM requiring that to cost to count as two selections, maybe it could it could. Or see the thing is, if the PCs choose to get this through a contribution rank, um, I, I don't think you know a, 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 a contribution rank increase. I mean, you could, but to me, I see it almost as as a, as not so much a proactive problem, but a reactive problem. So, for example, it, let's say let's say your rebel base gets an inspection from a customs agent or an imperial. It would entirely be possible to mask the fact that it's a rebel base. Everything we've talked about to this point, like core focus, security, NPC allies, a medical facility, even a hangar or a repair bay, these are things that could be explained away. It's like, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, we're, uh, we're a company uh, support warehouse, okay? Uh, we're, a co- we're a coalition of explorers. We're a, mer- we're a guild, okay? We're a merchant guild, okay? That's why we have all this stuff. You can't explain away an armory. <laughs> it's, it's restricted. It's like walking around downtown Coruscant with a heavy repeating blaster. It's restricted, okay? Mm. They're going to be like, they're gonna be like, why do you have an armory? Dude. Minox, <laughs> <laughs> really big Minox, really big freaking Minox. Um, <laughs> so yeah, uh, th- that's kind of kind of interesting. Ooh, look, Ratgul. <laughs> yes. Ooh, ooh, look, Ratgul. <laughs> um, okay, so four more. God, we've already been through so much. There's four more upgrades. Um, the next one is actually Dave. You mentioned earlier if you're going to be going the route of the training facility. Oh yeah. You need to get the training facility upgrade. Um, this is, you know, actually turning, you know, an upgrade to turn your rebel base into a proper training facility. Dorms, equipment, and facilities to accommodate the training of a platoon, a full platoon of recruits. Um, and co- consequently, players, PCs, can be able to call on these recruits and instructors for additional support in a pinch. This is the only upgrade, boys and girls, that grants the players bonus career skills. And again, yep. as we mentioned, something that is innate to homestead yes. businesses. Lightsaber. They have the coveted access. <laughs> they have the coveted access. Mm-hmm. No. I love the lightsaber. Yes. Yeah, un- unfortunately, no. Unfortunately, oh. no. When training facilities purchases an upgrade, players can choose one combat skill except lightsabers. That's called out. Or knowledge warfare um, as the bonus career skill granted by the facility. I understand why this is not a passive benefit, because when we talk about... Remember, remember the good advice that we gave last episode, guys, about... You say, you know, because because the the, the career skill list for homesteads and businesses was kind of short, but it was things like, you know, you know negotiation or survival, resilience. you know, resilience. Yeah. Those no are, combat stuff. Yeah, but we said, as a rule of thumb, no combat skills. You guys remember we said that? Here's why. I do remember. This is why, because for bases, yeah, you can get combat skills as a career skill, but you get to pay for it, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because it's really powerful. When when the party face and the party doctor and the party mechanic can now all get uh, you know cheap training and heavy weaponry, <laughs> that's really powerful. So mm-hmm. yeah, 
character. And it also makes sense as to why it's being all tied in with the contribution rank as the reward for it. Yeah, exactly. Because that's not like, oh, we scored big at the blackjack tables or the the sabak tables. We can now buy all this stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it, it makes perfect sense. Um, lastly, last three, we have the laboratory, which is a place, uh, upgrade, which is a place for scientists and engineers to conduct experiments in safety, um, as well as develop new devices and technological breakthroughs without penalty. Um, additionally, a laboratory will, uh, in, in a rebel base will grant characters making such checks in the lab, uh, to auto advantage on any check they roll. Pretty handy. That's huge. That's incredibly huge. Yes. Um, computers, knowledge, medicine, or mechanics checks for experimental purposes. For experimental purposes. You're trying to develop something new, create something new, two auto advantage, poof. Um, after that, we have... That's the, that's the perfect place to, like, be, you know, uh, for if the rules are anything like they are for... If the rules for constructing gear is going to be anything like the rules for constructing lightsabers, that's going to be a huge place to do stuff like that. Yeah, because, uh, because advantage matters. In or cons- to, or to make uh, or to uh, make mods on your equipment. Mm-hmm. Crazy. I would considering the fact that it's a full upgrade and what it takes to get it, and the fact that it's very expensive. I wouldn't have a problem as a GM even expending this beyond the experimental thing. If you're if you're wanting if you go into the lab to make mods to your attachments, I'd give you a couple auto advantage on that. I'd argue that's experimentation. Mm-hmm. There you go. So after the laboratory, we have the second to last upgrade, which is the command and control center. This is kind of kind of the nerve center of a rebel base. It's the room that's filled with monitors and computer stations to track base activities and field operations. Like like in, in Echo Base on Hoth, you know, it's the room where Princess Leia and 3PO were, and they have they have, for whatever reason, giant glass walls like with you know, decals of random, you know, geometric symbols on them and they're touching them with a light pen, you know? Yep. <laughs> um you know, that's your command and control center. And basically, from a mechanical perspective, it grants a boost die on any computers, any leadership, or any vigilance checks that are made there. Um, nice. Which can be pretty handy. Mm-hmm. Would you Especially too, if you're using mass combat rules. Yes, or better yet, how about even, okay, how about starship combat? So that room in Echo Base was used to coordinate um, the attack on the first Death Star, okay? The attack run. Would you guys say that Leia was a part of that combat, maybe acting as the commander of the squadron? Could have, yeah. I mean, I would totally say that she's using, you know, the uh, her her diplomatic abilities there to help inspire the PCs. Okay, um, just throwing that out there, and you know, the ability if you're able to be in that scenario where you can do that from low orbit. Um, mm-hmm. Hey, mm-hmm. get that get that boost on the leadership checks. Why not? So why not? Just saying. Um, and the last upgrade, research library, uh, which is a room of computers, databases, information archives for ease of reference, kind of allowing the players to make knowledge checks there, any knowledge check at no penalty, um, which is kind of handy um, if you've especially got some scholarly characters out there. Um, or, you know, we just went through some very interesting characters in Desperate Allies that rely pretty heavily on knowledge checks. <coughs> Analyst. Mm. <laughs> All right. If you have an analyst in the party, that research library is huge. So, this is an also this is also a good place to go for 
club parties that are not necessarily big on knowledge checks. I mean, have, they may have a rank or two in knowledge skills, but none of the researcher talents or anything else that goes along with knocking down the difficulty and reducing uh, yeah. setback dice and that sort of thing. This is a perfect place to do research and find out information that would be harder for you to do so without it. Truth. Truth. So those are our upgrades, and there's a lot of them, and that's basically what they do. Now, hang on a second. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Where are my turrets? Where's my anti-orbital ion cannon and planetary shield? <laughs> Where are my anti-vehicle cannons that look like giant radar dishes that to get actually get direct TV instead of do anything to an Adat Walker? Well, to quote Robert Redford, you basically be putting a sign on a building that said "Go away." <laughs> this is true. This is true. I mean, that just you know. I mean, you're gonna put a bunch of guns and planetary shields, all that that says, "Hey." Secret base, nothing illegal going on. Please ignore any X wings in the area. And by the way, Norse, no, no stormtroopers allowed. Okay, now you, you you bring up a really good point, man. Because it's like we went through all these upgrades in Desperate Allies. It's like there's a single automated heavy repeating blaster, and by right. the rules is written, you can only take that thing once. <laughs> but <laughs> but but I mean, I understand what you're saying. So there, there's this gut reaction to say, okay, this is a rebel base. I've watched right. I've watched Empire. I know that that's what I think a rebel base should look like. So shouldn't I have bigger ass guns to fight out the empire? But yeah, no, yeah. that's like the main rebel HQ. Right? Yeah, there's a difference. And and let's face it, the guns are there to act as a delaying action. They're not there to protect the base and repulse an attack. They're there to hold the. They're there. They did the job they were designed to do: hold off the empire so that the base can evacuate. Um, it wasn't even. It wasn't even. A, it wasn't even a discussion. Like when it happened, no. it wasn't like it's like they're here. Let's fight him. It was like they're here. Let's eva- send the evacuation order immediately. <laughs> they're here. Run. They're here. We have to run. Crap. We just got set up. Yep. It sucks. If, if the empire finds your base, they're going to keep throwing troops at it until it cracks and crumbles. This is the empire. They have the numbers to do that sort of thing. Swim want- away. Exactly. The Alliance's first response to an assault threat by the Empire is to run in the movies. And even in Fantasy Flight Games' book, uh, Adventure, Onslaught at Adra 1, when the Empire finds the rebel base, evacuation orders are issued, and heavy weapons that the Alliance has on hand are employed to delay the Empire and give the rebel command time to evacuate the base. Those are for huge bases, which your base could reach after many, many upgrades. But those large emplacements are not part of the rules because they are extravagant extras. They are often entirely different scope than just the automated defensive blaster, basic shields, or locks on the door. If you want those weapon emplacements, if you want minefields and planetary shield generators and anti-orbital ion cannons or any other extensive resource like that, your GM should require your group to acquire those in play and through more traditional means, perhaps as a separate contribution rank on their own. So you're like, if you hit rank six in your contribution rank, maybe you can cash that in for a couple of those turret towers or a couple, you know, a planetary shield or, or an anti-orbital ion cannon, that, that sort of thing. Well, dude, like the anti-orbital ion cannon, if you, if you get into the, the Legends material, the EU around that, 
Yeah. Like, I mean, it, it, maybe you can do the contribution rank too, but also that was an adventure just to get it and find it and develop it. That was like yeah. cutting edge prototype technology. The fact that the Rebels had that was huge, okay? Oh, yeah. And, and as you saw in the film, the Empire was completely unprepared for it. I mean, uh-huh. it's, it's like two blasts from that thing freaking disabled a pair of Star Destroyers. <laughs> Voop. Like, voomp, yeah. voomp. Like, oh, oh my God. God. And then the transports <laughs> get away. I mean, and that was, if you get into the EU, there was a huge, awesome story about how the Rebellion got that thing. Okay? Yeah. It was like and a, it, they lost it. And then they, and how they lost it. Ultimately. That was a one and done. Yeah. They, they, they can't get that off the planet. No, there's no way. It was there specifically to provide this ultimate line of, of, of defense. Of to, escape. To, of escape. Yeah. Let, to let us get away. Yeah. Oh. The Empire blew it up. Yeah, well, I think damn right they did. They damn right they did, or tried to take it for themselves. Um, sure. But ooh, I, I don't know. So, what nice. And, and here's the other thing: if you install those such devices, you're weighing the risks of those obvious emplacements and what they bring when it comes to imperial scrutiny. Okay, now this. So you would you would better have uh-huh. a damn isolated base if you are putting up a plant or a shield generator or a couple anti-vehicle turrets. That's right. And this is Otherwise, the- you know what? I would call it GM Fiat, and even though we're in an AOR campaign, I'm giving your ass obligation. <laughs> you know, that's you that's entirely feasible. Um, that's entirely feasible, actually. But that's the thing. It's like we're all dancing on the real issue here. The rebel, ba- a rebel base's first line of defense is secrecy. Okay, yeah. why did Echo yeah. Base have a planetary shield and a freaking, you know? Uh, anti-orbital ion cannon because it, it was on the ass end of the galaxy, galaxy. On an iceberg on an iceberg it was on a dead planet that no one would ever think to look for them at it was it was like we can do this because no one's ever going to know this planet is here ever and it took the empire months of probe droid searching just to possibly find it and quite frankly if vader hadn't had his coffee that morning <laughs> they still wouldn't have found it because even the regular imperial channels were like oh it's nothing <laughs> yeah also was like smugglers no i was was like no it's nothing it's nothing and vader's like no no what is it that's them it's like seriously if vader Vader had just not had his cup of coffee that morning got a little thirsty decided to go leave they still wouldn't have found the place right (laughs) basically dave to your point if the gm had given them obligation vader being there on that day at that time was happened because their obligation triggered that morning and doubles were rolled (laughs) yes absolutely damn straight so, yeah, man. So that's the rundown of the rules. And we've got some fantastic examples throughout the original trilogy um, of these bases. First and oh, yeah. foremost being Yavin, the first organized rebel base we get introduced to. It's built into some ancient temple on Yavin. Uh, the base featured a command center, extensive hangar bays, and dormitories. And gentlemen... The next one, we even named the chat room after it. Ah, yes. Echo Base. Echo Base. I think we've talked about Echo Base quite a bit, but yeah, I mean, built on Hoth, ass end of the galaxy. You know, this is base creation rules to the nth degree. Mm -hmm. Everything, extras, transports, bigger than Silhouette 5, airspeeder, fighter squadrons, cannons, planetary shield generator, and guess what? It still gets stomped. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. But Echo Base is pretty much the big brother for any base you'll be making with these rules. 
It's better the apex. Be. It's the apex. It's you, you could take every single option on this list, and it still won't be the same size as Echo Base. Yeah, Echo Base is is a base that was completely maxed out per the rules, and you underwent about oh half a dozen, maybe eight storyline quests to right. get it kitted out further. I mean, and from a Star Wars universe perspective, you basically had probably about a dozen parties of PCs, <laughs> sure, <laughs> doing storyline quests to specially outfit Echo Base. And, and dumping their contribution rank awards into it. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, yeah, but there's, there's, there's a lot of fun you can have with this. And one of the things I think we can take from Echo Base is you can't hold it up like the Paragon. I mean, it's something that players can aspire towards with their base. But even then, I mean, it's almost wasted effort. Do you want to pour that much into something that's going to be such an obvious target? And if it is targeted, you will not survive, okay? There, there is and no way actually, to survive. That actually is a great sort of built-in metagame break on your facility as well. You don't want to dump so much into it that the Empire could find it. You dump in a full hangar bay, a full training facility, a big-ass armory, giant medical facility. You max out everything, and the GM is almost obligated to say, um, you guys got to be careful. The Empire is really has a good chance of finding you because of all this you've got. You're operating it. You're operating new troops out of this facility every few months, and you're constantly having two squadrons of fighters out on missions from this base. You've got a lot of coming and going going on here. It really gives an opportunity for the GM to to remind the players, hey, you go too big, you might get found, and then all this is for naught. Yeah. So that's the thing. When you talk about going big or going home, let's sure. let's, let's talk about going home. What are what are some of the more interesting things that we can recommend and think about? One of the things I loved about our last episode, guys, is that we came up with a lot of really fun concepts for bases. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about some interest or, uh, concepts for for homesteads and businesses. Let's let's come up with some concepts for bases. What are some really interesting ideas and concepts? Um, locales and other things that we can think of for bases that might inspire some of the listeners out there um, with their own playgroups. I seem to be on a real niche for these, um, but I like the, the the idea that I came up with of having a training facility set up in a derelict dreadnought on the edge of an old ship boneyard. Ooh. Yeah, the bridge has been converted into a giant simulator where recruits learn capital ship tactics and operations for use against the Imperial Navy. And your NPC running it is Commander Ender. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I didn't even think of that. I didn't even think of that. Dude, yes. Commander Wigan. Yes. <laughs> <clears throat> That's awesome. So... What about like a um, VFW, if you will, or Veterans of the Clone Wars meeting hall that really doubles <laughs> as a secret meeting place for parties that are interested in helping the Rebel Alliance? So, like, you know, it has legitimate functions in the main hall. Like, you know, it has parties. It, it you know, it functions as a business, so to speak, even. You know, it could potentially sure. Sure. derive income from booking uh you know, fallout weddings and, and proms and whatnot. That's right. Yeah. But, uh, you know, all that's going on upstairs via, and then, uh, you know, Hey, your terrorists are downstairs. You just don't know it. <laughs> We're going to overthrow the government. Nice. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. My idea is a sub basement safe house. 
um, beneath a local distribution office for an off-world shipping company. Um, basically, if you if you disguise it as a shipping company, or or more importantly, if you're just if you're near a shipping company, you got packages coming and going at all hours, right? So it's this perfect cover for people to be coming and going at all hours, and it gives also a lot of excuse and cover for moving weapons and equipment, even in plain sight. Um, <laughs> giant crate number twelve, giant crate number eighty-two. Pretty much, pretty much. Um, I don't know. I, I want I want a really ballsy group of PCs to go to like like find a disused maybe sewer station like underneath an imperial shipping facility and use that as their base. Okay, that's ballsy. And maybe their NPC is as like an imperial supply manager who's a mole. <laughs> nice and is able to like is able to take certain crates and dock them in like just a random shipping closet somewhere you know like a storage hanger basically <laughs> that has a that has a floor grate that can be moved and haul you know stuff in and out of the rebel base it's got a false elevator <laughs> got a false elevator. i mean seriously it's like it's like where's the empire never gonna look you know what i mean yeah oh um, that's brilliant but there's constant there's constant threat with that right so which is what makes it fun <clears throat> Yeah. It does make it fun. Now, one of the interesting things, um, yeah, I had, I, I, you know, I, we mentioned earlier in the uh, in in the retcon, I was having a really good conversation with Keith Capel about this episode because, you know, as the man who wrote the rules, he really wanted to weigh in on this, and he, you know, he was like, oh man, he's, he was like, oh, I, I loved it, it was great. He he busted a gut over um, over what was his favorite Exogorth dung, by the way. <laughs> I think I think was his uh, the Exogorth dung mining operation. He thought was pretty incredible. That's um, awesome. But he, he mentioned, you know, one of the things that when you talk about obligation in play for, you know, for, for homesteads and businesses, he said that you can use that that obligation in interesting ways. He says, but also that it provides a very – and this applies, for, this applies for bases as well. Just having a base or a homestead or a business can have interesting effects that apply to your party in combat. For example, despair. He said, okay, so you're, you're in the middle of a tense combat scenario, or better yet, a social encounter, a deep negotiation, and you roll a despair. And all of a sudden, your comm link starts ringing, goes off. You look, and you see it's your base or your homestead, and they're broadcasting an emergency signal. Ooh. All right. Ooh. Okay. That's not good. That's not good. And he says, you know, but that's just, you know, what a what an unusual and unique way to use your your despair in an encounter that's completely unrelated. But it's just like, oh man, to completely throw the PCs off their game. All right, maybe even force them to prematurely end whatever it is they're doing because they got to go back and deal with this. Right. And maybe when they get there, they find out that Aunt Mabel burned the toast, and that was the concern. Okay, maybe there was a kitchen fire. All right. <laughs> But but either way, I thought that was a really br- brilliant suggestion, and it applies to bases too. I think even more so for bases because you better believe if a group of rebels are on or out there doing their thing, and you get a calm in from your base with an emergency signal, that has a whole different set of connotations to it. Sure. So I thought that was really really interesting. But you know, we talk about that. We talk about obligation. Things work a little different for bases because obviously, aside from Dave's very excellent suggestion for getting crazy stuff in your base before, obligation doesn't come into play because we're obviously not in the edge of the Empire line. I not mean, core, no, not core. I mean, bases are not managed through obligation the way that they, the way that homestead and business holdings are. Bases are managed with duty. 
so the let's let's let's, let's talk about Call of Duty here. <laughs> sure. Um, you know, Phil, you made a comment before about how establishing a base and really getting it repped up um, adds an air of like prestige to a rebel unit. You know, a little bit, yeah, of, a little yeah. bit of mag- legitimacy their their dedication to the cause, right? It, another another resource for the alliance to draw from in their battle against the empire. But right, the growth of the base is an important duty that can translate directly into one or more PCs duty scores. And similar to how similarly to how with with homesteads and businesses, you had the ability to take party obligation. Um, Desperate Allies Sourcebook actually has a very useful sidebar on page 87 that talks about a party's base becoming the duty for one, some, or all of the PCs. That if you want to go this route, you can actually make the base your duty because supporting that base adds to the overall resources and prestige of the alliance. Right, it absolutely can. And much like when you roll the obligation in in a homestead or a business, when the base's duty is triggered, the PCs could simply be emboldened by the work they've done or the base could feature prominently in the next adventure. You know, Maybe it does come under attack or maybe a new resource is discovered related to an upgrade that the base doesn't have yet. Uh, an entire adventure could be, could be wrapped around the PCs capturing that resource and adding it to their base's services. Mm-hmm. You know, and so instead of a monetary reward, the GM gives them a a massive data computer that can be that turns into a research facility, or they find a couple Bacta tanks and Bacta and and whole, they they basically raid an Imperial medical facility, and that's what they get away with. And now they have a medical facility for theirs. Um, or if you do decide to have the Empire attack as part of the duty being rolled, give the PCs a chance. To maintain the secrecy during the attack, make the empire re- uh, uh, attack the base and come across it unexpectedly. Attack the base, but give the PCs an opportunity to jam communications to maintain the base secrecy, or else someone's going to get away. The empire is just going to show up with a star destroyer, yeah, and and pieces. and the base is toast. And that's the thing. This is and this is one of the major differences between obligation and duty. When your obligation triggers, it's bad. Yeah. When your duty triggers, that's a good thing. You you want your duty to trigger. You know what I right. mean? You you want it to. And so when you trigger duty, it's a great idea. Okay, wow, we're going to put the rebel base under attack. But if the end result is going to be the Empire destroying that base, eh, we're kind of going against the rules as intended for duty, aren't we? Yeah, so, so we are. Phil, your point is more valid than ever. It's one of those things that the adventure needs to be a highly winnable scenario for the PCs. Where okay, it's under attack, but we have we have to we have to have the, we have to be able to succeed at this encounter, whatever it is, and walk away with our base being secret and being intact. Yes. If and if the empire does get away, then you need to give the PCs an opportunity to falsify the data, to intercept the the message going out, to do something. Unless the PCs have really made some bonehead mistakes. And the consequence is quite simply, sorry guys, it's it's the way the dice fell. It's the what actions you've taken. You you knowingly did action X, which you knew would cause your base to become to lose its secrecy, to to become known. Here's the consequence. That's different. Yeah. Direct action to 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 broadcast or or or, or just give up the secrecy of your base. That's something that you would have to bring the hammer down on as a consequence, as a role-playing storyline, as a plot. But 
just as a role for your duty score for the base coming up? No, no, no. no. Give him, a, give him, a, give him a win. Give him a win. Give him a good fight, a good time. Give him a win. Yeah, and it's one of those things that if they, if they, and and, and here's here's how I, here's how I would handle it. And I know this is metagaming, but as your GM, as the GM, it's your job to metagame. Just not let the players know you're metagaming, right? Sure. Because you're the one writing the story. When that duty triggers and the rebel base gets attacked, your rebel base, what happens if the PCs do fail? Okay, you say make it winnable, but you got to make it challenging, right? So what happens if the PCs do fail at that point? I mean, and, and you know, they, they fail to stop or, or neutralize the Imperial threat, or maybe the Imperials get away, okay? At that point... You do a little deus ex machina, and you have other rebels show up to completely neutralize that threat. Ooh. Okay. And then what you're yeah. left with is, okay, the base is intact, the secret is intact, but at that point, basically, if you succeed in the in the battle and you're the one who stops those Imperials, you get a large duty increase. If you fail you either don't get a duty increase or you get a very small duty increase because quite frankly, you had to have your asses pulled out of the fire by another rebel group. Right. Okay. And in that, in that sense, you're really playing into the duty mechanic. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's, that's my personal recommendation with that. Sure. You're, you know, it's going badly. So the NPC sends a distress signal on a coded channel. Exactly. And somebody shows up to take care of it for you. Yeah. An Imperial scout ship is about to get away, and then all of a sudden, the the uh, Reb- the Alliance warship Liberty drops out of hyperspace and blasts it to pieces. Pew pew. <laughs> Good thing we got here when we did. You folks would have been screwed. Uh, yeah, thanks, Liberty. Great. Thanks all your base are belong to shit. <laughs> <laughs> so these are some great tips, and these are uh, this is a great review of of these resources from a player standpoint but all these facilities and as we've been mentioning just in this this past you know uh, this past little blip on uh, call of duty um, all of these facilities offer great opportunities for GMs they all have at least one new NPC in some cases many more and these are characters that the GM can just like the last show can create whole backstories for these guys they offer great launching points for adventure ideas and just like homesteads and businesses, rebel bases are GM resources just waiting to be used for adventure points. Totally. So uh, not to exactly replay the exact same thing we said last episode, but these are, these are some tips that you GMs can use to make these bases and stand out and be utilized and be used and be memorable and be more than just a backdrop that the PCs encounter every once in a while. Um, you got to make the facility memorable. Unless the PCs have total control over every aspect of the property, GM, you've got some. You got to give these things some unique, uh, unique aesthetic features for the home. Uh, it's got like bantha, bantha skins on the walls, man. Ex- it might. It absolutely might. It's got dudes riding bikes. Um. <laughs> well, what about a safe house whose downstairs neighbor blasts hooden folk rock at all hours, which helps mask the safe house's conversations? <laughs> Okay, that's that's pretty good. Um, okay, I'll go bazinga for a second. I'll say uh, the place the the, 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 the your safe house has one comfortable chair. <laughs> okay. All right, and everyone jumps over each other to try to get to it for a meeting. 
yeah, pretty much. Um, <laughs> you're in my spot. <laughs> you're, 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 you're in my spot. That's my spot. Um, you know, little, <laughs> little, little, little things like that to make the facility just extremely memorable. Look um, at the bases we've got. I mean, one base was built out of a temple for crying out loud, an ancient thousand-year-old temple. Imagine if the Rebel Alliance or imagine if some United States government facility was housed out of one of the Egyptian pyramids. <laughs> okay, yeah, that, which is basically what the Temple on Yavin was. I mean, when you get down to it. Um, yeah. But even environmentally, I mean, look at look at. I mean, I know, I know, it's it's not an example to hold up for PCs, but look at Echo Base, man. I mean, just the locale alone is fascinating. It was carved out of the ice, pretty much. It had to be kept at a all, constantly at a te- at a degree where the, the the facility wouldn't melt. Yeah, and that's that's pretty fascinating. Um, I mean, they, they even joke about it. Who told you to turn on the thermal heaters in the princess's quarters? <laughs> you know. <laughs> Um, if all the clothes will dry out, I'll never know. You know, I mean that 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 kind of thing. So yeah, I mean there's there's a lot you can do to make it memorable. And you know, a lot of the advice we gave last episode about making the locale memorable for a homestead or a business can apply here as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh sure, and just like making the NPCs memorable too, right? Same deal. Yeah. Oh, totally. Go go for it. Well, I mean, I, I just as an example, I mean, we talked about this last episode, right? We talked about droids or hired hands or base administrators or whatever, right? You've got NPCs floating around, but, you know, they're resources for the PCs, but they're also people they're, or droids. They have, in most cases, they may have lives or even desires. <laughs> so you're creating a character, you know, that's going to inhabit the property. It's going to be more than just filler or backdrop so uh the there is a um there's a section uh the game mastering chapter in the core rule books that is uh, entitled creating memorable npcs there's great ideas there oh totally is yeah you know that, that you know you it. can give npcs color and life and you know bring them bring them to to life you know for your for your party and you know and, and come up with a reason as to why it's there you know it, it, it's um you know, it's a it's a great point to consider. You know, for the attitude of the NPC, right? So, why you know, are you think? Why like, are they working at the rebel base? Yeah, 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 yeah. Why are they there? This is an administration droid, for example, that's assigned to a base who has it stuck in his programming to manage a neat, proper, efficient base. The PC's expediency be damned, right? This is a droid <laughs> with a CD. <laughs> There is one way that this base is run, and if you need new equipment, you must fill out these orders immediately. In triplicate, the, the Imperials are knocking on our door, <laughs> sir. We cannot do, we cannot throw protocol and uh, right off the window just because the Empire is here. <laughs> that's that's, awesome. that's I mean, that, you, you you basically you remember the um, did y'all ever see Heartbreak or, or was it Heartbreak Ridge? It's an Eastwood movie. Oh yeah, 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 Ridge. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where that lieutenant that comes in is a pencil pushing idiot who wants to fill out forms instead of deploying to battle. Right. I mean, that's basically what you're looking at. That's awesome. What else do we have for good NPCs? What uh, else can we come up with? Uh, Q. Q. Q from James Bond. Basically, okay. I mean, he's a mechanic who's brought into the rebel base by the PCs, and he takes this intense pride in his work. But he is like flips out every time the party returns from a mission and it's damaged, or there's a scratch on the paint, or you know. Okay, we need now to listen say, here, 007. I went to Star Trek. 
<laughs> oh, okay, okay, that's fair, that's fair, okay. okay. Now listen here, double <laughs> I'm sick and tired of killing back my laser pens all snapped and broken. <laughs> please return, before they go on mission, please return all of your assigned mission equipment in proper functioning order. I mean, yeah. yeah. Um, how about how about this? How about a a den mother, if you will, who lost her children in the rebellion, or they were killed by Imperials, and she can't, she's too old to be a soldier. Okay. But she can help maintain the base. Maybe, maybe she really, truly treats the PCs as surrogate children, a den mother. You know, she worries about them while they're gone, and she gets on to them for being injured and asking him, what have you eaten today? How long has it been <laughs> since you slept? That's that's epic. Yes. I love it. The PCs get done with some exhausting adventure. They get back. They're all bruised and battered. And she's there shouting at them. <laughs> what did you do? What did you do? Baby child, do you have anything to eat today? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's great. Baby child. <sighs> there's a there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of color and life you can give to this but yeah man why is the npc there if you can answer that question and you'll, you'll see that from some of our build-offs too um if you can answer the question as to why the npc is there this applies to bases this applies to homesteads this applies to businesses why are they working for you or in that capacity, why? If you can just answer that question, you will completely flesh out the NPC. With just answering that one question with a single sentence or two, you will all of a sudden have a personality for that person. You will know what their wants are. You will know what their desires are. You will know everything if you can answer a meaty question as to why they're working there. And the answer should never be, it's a paycheck. Okay? <laughs> no, never. You don't join the alliance to get paid. No. And even then, for a homestead or a business, it shouldn't be for a paycheck. That should no. never be the answer. The answer should always be a lot meatier and meaningful for that. If money ever comes into the conversation, even for a, a, a non-base holding, for a homestead or a business, force your players to rethink it. Well, uh, hold on. as long as that's not the only reason. Yeah, well, yeah, people want to get paid, but that shouldn't be the first reason they come up with. So. True, true. I, I, I saw something in the chat room which just makes my mind go absolutely crazy awesome speed. What's that? An orphanage, home for troubled kids. All of a sudden, they just all go off and fight at the same time. And, oh, they're just kids being... <laughs> oh, why does that sound very Russian to me? Dude, that's, that's a really good idea. We have, we have, we have um, McFalnar's home for... We have McFalnar Institute for Gifted, for gifted Youth. Gifted Youngsters. <laughs> Yes, McFalnar's Institute for Gifted Youngsters. And, Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. and they're all, yes, they're orphans. Or it's a boarding school. How about that? It's a boarding, yes. it's, a, it's a private boarding school. And, you know, they all have uniforms and there's a secret underground training facility. Some might call it a danger room. Mm. And uh, he says in air quotes. And yeah, they just, you know, they have a stealth ship and they go off and they fight the Empire. I recommend for if you're going to be using a danger room, please take a look at uh, Chris West's battle stations for the simulator room map. Yeah, yeah, and the, for, the, seriously, that for for a young group of players, I mean, or uh, players, a young group of characters, that could be a that could be just a badass campaign idea. I mean, as a GM, you come into this and I'm like, okay, here's the deal: we're gonna for your party resource, I really want to work with you guys. We're gonna build a rebel base, and this is kind of the idea I have for it. And I want you to create characters that are that are you know 15 to 18 years old. That's what your characters are, you know, you know. 
Chris. You see, uh, GM uh, uh, engineer and uh, how do you say your name? It's engineer. Engineer. Uh, duh, of course it is. <laughs> it's a late night. Isn't that Black Widow's backstory? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. No, no. Engineer, that's a different campaign. <laughs> Very different campaign. Um, uh, just as a quick time check, those of you listening right now, you have seven minutes before the um, Fear of the Walking Dead begins. <laughs> oh, man, are you DVRing it? <clears throat> the, I DVR'd the one that was at 8 o'clock. Oh, okay. It's on again at 9.30. Okay, well, you then, then you're good. Then you're there you good. go. Okay. okay. Engineer, God. So these are, Sorry, man. No, these are, these, are all, these are all really good ideas. And I... <sighs> so I, I, speaking of engineer... What have we really talked about? What happens when something breaks on the base? Oh, you mean how? How so? I you know I don't. It's because you know as if you have a homestead or if you have a business or whatever, invariably something goes wrong. Sure. Right. So, is this something else you guys would recommend just putting in as you know if if you if you roll the base's duty, then maybe something goes wrong, and that gives them the opportunity to go out and source something. And then that might actually wind up leading to bigger and better things if they wind up, you know, or, you know, an improbi- uh, an, uh, a probe droid landed near the base and, and you know, they found the base. They're trying to broadcast and... Or they're near the base. Or they're, they're near yeah. the base. Well, okay, what if you... What, okay, so this is interesting. Now, I want to talk about that probe droid. And I want to get into this. But, like, here's the deal. When, when you roll... That when when the base's duty triggers, you need to provide your PCs with the chance to increase their duty. Hefty. That's kind of the point, sure. right? That's what you're triggering. Sure. sure. The act of fixing something that breaks or resolving a problem should earn prestige for the base or earn additional resources for the base. Right. But we, so so this is a great idea. Okay. So the base's duty triggers. You have an imperial probe droid that lands near the base somewhere. Okay. But. When you're doing this, you have to think about the escalation. You have to think about what if you roll doubles? What's the oh crap right. moment, right? So what is the escalation if you have a probe droid land near the base? Oh, What's okay, the there you go. So the probe droid lands, it's, it's close by. If I double, then it found the base and you've got to go disable it. Uh. Right, but remember that you need to give the PCs a chance to intercept it. The, the PCs right. in... Empire Strikes Back, that being Han and Chewie, they didn't have a chance. It got off the message. Right. Um, so maybe the PC's base's location, uh, the signal is being interrupted by a solar storm. Uh, the solar storm won't last forever, but it does give the PC's a window to destroy the droid. Oh, yeah, and you could pick that up, right? You know, the, the hey, you know, something, is, something entered the atmosphere and crashed into the planet's surface, you know, and that gives right. the PC's a warning to, hey, go out and check it out. Precisely. And the doubles is a simply a matter of can they intercept it before it finds the base or do they intercept it after it just found the base? Exactly. Exactly. Okay, okay, I got one. Um, okay, go for it. Okay. Uh, duty triggers for the base. Uh, okay. And let's say the base is a safe house, all right? And sure. basically, um, the owner, the ultimate landlord of the PC's safe house, who's you know oblivious to the fact that these are rebels... Um, is trying to rent the property now next door to a dyed-in-the-wool conservative imperial citizen. Okay. <laughs> who is who is notorious for turning in suspected rebels, right? He's got like, you know, you know, you know, you know, Empire Day bumper stickers and an imperial flag flying right outside his door. You know what I mean? Maybe he's been on the hollow net for having discovered a, a rebel cell or, in the, his last town. Oh, yeah, precisely. Okay. And so your duty triggers and oh my gosh, they're trying to rent the apartment next door to our safe house to this guy. 
All right. <laughs> and so and so you kind of have to maybe 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 it becomes trying to prevent that from happening or stopping it. Escalation, you roll doubles on this. Um, not only does the rent like like as as the guy's negotiating for the rental, um, this new neighbor is seen actually spying through the safe house's window, maybe taking notes on a data pad. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and so it's not just hey, don't let the rental happen, but oh crap, now he has information that we have to deal with. We have to deal with him now, not just crap. keep him from renting. Yeah, that's awesome. That is awesome. <clears throat> So okay, these are these are interesting ideas. I, I want to call an audible and talk about one other thing from a GM tip perspective. Okay. And this isn't in show notes, but I'm I'm really thinking about it, and I, I think I, I think we just maybe forgot to to write it up proper in show notes. But I know we all intended to talk about it. Last episode, we talked about the idea that you could do a homestead and a business. Okay, you could ha- you yes. could you could own both. And we also mentioned the idea that there's nothing saying that you couldn't obviously paying for them separately. Um, and upgrading them separately, maybe even have the same location be a homestead and a business, right? Sure, sure. What do you guys think? Because obviously there's nothing stopping you from getting a base and a homestead slash business. What do you guys think about the same unit or the same locale thing being both a rebel base and a homestead business we've thrown about ideas where it's like oh yeah we're underneath a shipping facility or we're masked by the presence of that thing right what if that thing is an actual honest to goodness business or homestead that is also being run by the party and is generating income and doing all that stuff as well I mean, how do you guys see these those things interacting? Is it a good idea? How do we see duty and obligation interacting necessarily together at that point? And what crazy ideas can we come up with for combining those two? Because I see a lot of campaign usage there. Absolutely. I don't see any reason why you couldn't put them together. Um, I would go with one of the similar caveats that I had in that I mentioned in the last episode, which was... Everyone is everyone is tied to one aspect of the property, so you're tied to the either the homestead, the business, or the base. Tie in your you know, either you have an obligation to the homestead, you have an obligation to the to the the the, the business, or you have a duty to the base. Um, that's going to keep things nice, clean, and separate. And it's not it's going to prevent the sort of double dipping that we were talking about before. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Uh, otherwise, um, friggin' go for it. It can it can be hilarious, and 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 I don't and that's that's how some of these bases come into play. That's how you could have the meeting house. You could have the meeting house in a secret back room of a casino, or have a safe house or a listening post underneath a legitimate retail business. It's an awesome combo. I I I encourage it. I think it, I think it could be great, especially if you have a edge of the empire. And Age of Rebellion mixed crew. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you could have a lot of synergy there. Um, Hooli, GM Hooli's in chat. He had an awesome suggestion that resonated with he me, did. and and wanted to make me think of this. Last episode, we talked about one of the ideas for a business is a taxi company. Okay. Yeah. yeah. What about a taxi company business slash base that actually serves to transport rebels around safely within an imperial world, or maybe to help defectors? to the Alliance, get safely with inside uh, uh, Rebel uh, cell walls. That is genius. That is an awesome combo with a business and a safe house. Because, Dave, I know when you make the driver that you want to make so bad, okay, 
um, because I know you freaking love that spec. Tell me that would not be the most awesome uh, compound, like like base business choice for a group of aces or planetary drivers or whatever. Are there all these hot shot cabbies? You know who are. I know. Sick- I'm, I'm, in fact, I'm going to call my I'm going to call my business Uber. <laughs> <laughs> it is so massive. It's Uber. Uh, that's that's awesome. I mean, no, this is this is this is these are these are great suggestions. Um, you know, the idea of a of you know, and there's some that are that are you know not necessarily hyper creative, but they're really just sensible. Like for example, a mine. Okay, like okay, we're mining Tabana gas, or we're mining carbon, or you know some other metal that's critical. Except we're not selling this off to just the market. We're delivering this to the alliance. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. If uh, if we're if we're manufacturing uh, you know weapons, yeah, that's a business, but we're also sending it to the alliance. You know what I mean? Um, or at least a portion of it, funneling it. Sure. Sure. Um. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I go back to James Bond again. It's like, um, it's like a Goldfinger. You know, it's like he's a, you know, he's a, he's a smuggler. It's what he's doing. But at the same time, he's a licensed jeweler. He has the right to operate modest metallurgical facilities. You know what I mean? Um, you know, one one of the lines from Goldfinger. So it's 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 like okay, so you, you can set up your business to where it's an excuse for you to legitimately have the equipment and whatever to do things. We talk about a a, a weapon shop, a gun shop. Okay. You know, and we talked about how how the armory upgrade is restricted, all right? And that's going to turn an Imperial Customs agent's head. Why the hell do you have an armory? Because I'm a gun shop. <laughs> here's my license. Here's my renewal. Here's ah. my insurance. Pretty much. Oh, no, those weapons were destroyed. I'd also, I'd also like to point out, do you guys recall one of the upgrades for the business was the ability to buy things in bulk? Uh-huh. Tell me that would not help the Rebel Alliance. Seriously. 200 stim packs, please. Yeah. Why? Because I'm a dealer. They're not they're not going to any major, you know, group intent on overthrowing the current legally recognized government. They're just for sale. <laughs> yes, I need a dozen cyber arms. Why? Cuz I do. I like to stop uh, I like I like to stock up. The pod races are coming here next month. Yeah. Here's I'm my a prepper. Here, I'm a prepper. Here's my license. Yeah, I sell. To, I, sell I, I sell to. I sell to preppers. Here's my license. <laughs> I love it. Oh, that might be the best answer yet. As to why I need it. Oh no, that's 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 awesome. And and yeah, GM players, if if it's going to fit in your campaign and it's going to be fun, absolutely, absolutely, business base, homestead base, homestead business, match them up. It, it 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 could get fun. It could get crazy. Hey, here's an idea um, for a business we didn't mention last episode. Okay. Um, this is kind of weird. Um, Slumlord. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, realtor. Okay, property owner. All right. I mean, literally, literally, you own an apartment block. That's a totally legitimate business, right? Yeah. You own an apartment block. Now you combine that with a rebel base, and what you've got is basically a secure facility that can house people who don't want to be found by the empire. Right. It's not just, this is a safe, it's, it's like, this is a safe house, a massive safe house that's disguised as, an, as a normal tenement building. And the tenement owners are actually ensuring that no one will ever find out. Take it one step further, make it a hotel. Ooh, great idea. Then you could have like actual agents operating out of there. 
And it makes sense that people are coming, going constantly. Cargo is coming and going constantly. Same could be said. People arriving and leaving. Dude, a hotel casino. Yeah. Yeah. Large credit transfers. Oh, yeah. Oh, Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I am all about this. Dude. (laughs) Good fun. Good fun. This engine brought to you by the letter F. (laughs) And as far as how the properties, because they're basically mated together now. Um, and how the properties relate when it comes to obligation and duty is you take it for what it is, how obligation is a negative and duty is a positive. So if something comes up on obligation, something happens that is a negative deterrent to the business aspect. And as a consequence of it, if the PCs aren't able to deal with that obligation, uh, aren't able to deal with that, then it could run the risk of jeopardizing the entire operation. Whereas the duty, once again, is a positive benefit where something positive could happen to increase the resources or increase the prestige of this facility's uh, of this facility's stature within the rebellion absolutely within the rebellion yes okay so I, this excites me we okay let's <laughs> i want to get into our build off but i have one more thing i think we should talk about okay we've talked about okay the edge of the empire holdings of homesteads and businesses we've talked about the age of rebellion holdings of a rebel base and we've talked yep. about now how those two can mingle together sure can we possibly speculate on maybe any future holdings that might be coming in the now core rulebook release third line yes just I think, I think we should wait and ask Sam in two weeks because he'll tell us, right? <laughs> oh, he'll totally tell us. Yeah, totally tell us. Yes, tell. Hey, Sam, ask about those products. We're going to ask you questions about products that haven't been announced yet. He'll totally tell us. Don't want to. Yeah, we should ask. Totally, not really. I can assure you that even off the air, every recording device that we have shut off, and even with the fact that many of us have signed NDAs, he would still tell us. Sorry, can't say anything. Sorry, can't say anything. That's 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 correct, but but no, but I'm, okay, I, I want to speculate about it. Okay, let's say they never write it. Okay, let's okay. say they never ever write it at all, because obviously the idea is there. Okay, for Force and Destiny, temples, right? All sure, right, absolutely. Doing that's what you'd have. proxiums, training academies. Um, you know, because you know, with with the consulars, maybe the mystics will give us Jedi academies. Um, you know, training facilities that are going to hone and teach the ways of the Force to other aspiring Jedi. And this is like this is like part homestead. It's part business, part training facility, meeting house. Um, yep. I don't know. I mean, I, let's 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 speculate. If you if we were to design this ourselves, and we have players out there that want to do this, I mean, this is like, I mean, mechanically, can it be? You know, I mean, how how do you? Let's kit bash it. How do you I, think it would work? <laughs> I okay. Let me let me go. Let me just let me just go on record that I have a severe problem with this. Oh, please. Okay. Yes. Tell it. What? Okay. Tell, say it. Say it. The nature of a Jedi Academy to me is like freaking Yoda and the council. And that's going to be way beyond the scope of what a normal party is going to see. You know, I, I, I can buy, you know, a party taking on a Padawan or two, but, you know, and maybe may, if you're talking about Jedi Academies in that scale, then, I, then, I'm, then I'm with you. But the Jedi Academy? No. Okay. Well, right. That's 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 Echo Base though. That's exactly exactly. No, we're not thinking Echo Base size. We're not thinking the Jedi Temple size. We're thinking in Legends, Luke after Endor, where he's got like four students and a beat up temple, (laughs) and that's all. Uh, We're talking. 
we're talking uh, facilities like safe houses where folks who are force sensitive can be brought in safely and almost like a, an underground railroad brought to other areas, just even in the rebellion, just to keep them safe, finding other force sensitive to keep them safe from the empire or places where such knowledge can be put together and, and put in one location and accessed by a force sensitive group. Uh, we're talking someplace that is a mix of all three types, a remote facility or at least a secret facility that provides a service but we must remain secret in order to thrive. Now, how – OK. So how could we kitbash this? Okay, how well, could we do it? OK. Well, here's the problem. With the other two lines, we have a concrete party resource that we can call upon to do this. Sure. For age, we have duty. For edge, we have obligation. We don't have that for Force and Destiny. The the that that character axis is morality, and that's although not, that's I not mean a, I could see the morality tie-in being you have to have morality of X to be able to start one of these. Maybe, it could maybe, be. It could be. but like if we're gonna if we're gonna manage this from a concrete perspective, like we ha- there has to be a credit cost associated with it, or you know, it, like like with bases, it was a duty, you know, a contribution rank increase, or with. Uh, with homesteads uh, businesses, it was a, an obligation increase, right? I would run it with obligation personally because you're putting a target on yourself. Mm. Yeah, and, that, and that's what I think. I think that you you take a you take a a, a page from the chapter of uh, cross mm. cross running, you know, mixing all three books together, and you put an obligation on top of this. Dude, that is that is wisdom right there because you're right. It's it, that, dude, such a facility like that in this time period is going to be a big freaking target. I mean, yep. hmm. be a huge target. Um, what that know, if, if, I, if we're doing that, we can follow the homestead business guidelines. I mean, I think the, that's the I think that's a great place to start. I mean, so what? Fifty k and five party obligation to get yep. one of these after the fact, or you choose it as your starting resource. Okay, or you choose their starting resource. Now, I, I, you know, even if you do choose it as a starting resource, I still might want to put the five-point obligation on it as long as the academy exists. I would agree with – I mean, that, that, Dave, based on what you just said too, I would agree. You know, you, th- there needs to be that air of discovery, that, that trepidation of, oh, my God, we've been found out. Okay. Um, and, you know, and, and depending on the type of facility, there's nothing that says that you can't just up and move it. This is true. Depending, um, I mean, you might lose some of the resources. You might lose some of the aspects of it, and we'll go into that in a second. But it may just be an adventure or two as you find a new location. You set up another another shop, another dojo, whatever you want to call it. Um, but ha- but having this academy as long as it exists, I feel it needs to have that minimum five point obligation just to just to maintain that air of discovery, okay. that thread of discovery, I should say. Okay, so in our hypothetical kit bash Jedi Academy here, if that's what it's going to cost for the base facility, just to have it, um, would it provide you any uh, uh, like like a homesteader business does any career skill or anything like that? Would you go with with discipline, or would you would you go the I mean, would you go the route of maybe you'd have to turn it into a training facility with an upgrade? I would say you'd have to turn it into a training facility. Okay, I, I think that. If just active, uh, just using this as a sort of a pooled resource, a library, a, a storehouse, a safe house, or whatnot, I don't think that's going to give you a a, a class skill because you're not operating anything. You're not operating a homestead. You're not operating a a business. 
Although maybe you are, and if maybe if that's the case, then maybe you do have uh, discipline be the uh, be the skill or knowledge lore. Depending I, on the type of facility and the, its core focus, maybe you do have that. Maybe it is a, a, a discipline or knowledge lore check. I can't think of any other well, okay, s- no. skill that would necessarily be tied in. I, I, think, I think you're spot on. And the thing is, for force users, discipline is as potent as any combat skill. And, it is. And as we've discussed, if combat skill is going to become a career skill for the party or you're going to get any type of bonus to it, you got to pay for it. You shouldn't get it for free, which is, this, which is why you have to pay for it for bases, okay, in terms of training. So room. get it tied in with a training terms, facility. Okay, okay, I'm with you on board. Okay, so okay, th- there's that. What, I mean, considering all the upgrade lists out there that we've talked about, what do you see as upgrades possibilities and how would they function for our hypothetical kit-bashed Jedi Academy? I think you're going to draw from both. Okay. Um, for you know, every, obviously you're going to have increased core focus, um, but I would use the rules for bases for this. You're yeah. not going to be making money or providing income with a core focus for with increasing the core focus on a on an academy, uh, but it may make obtaining certain hard to find objects a little easier. Okay. Okay. Um, I'd be very weary uh, and leery towards. Taking something with a rarity ten and knocking it down to a rarity five, like some of those really high uh, high value uh, lightsaber crystals. But you know, maybe that's just something that the GM has to take a, take, take care of. You and maybe he, the GM decides you can knock down the rarity cost of any item as long as it's not restricted. And I think all those lightsaber crystals are restricted. I think. Hmm. I'm not 100 sure though. Um, improve security. Use the homestead rules. Not the base rules? I suppose you could use the base rules if you want to find a heavy uh, heavy repeating blaster to install somewhere. Mm. That's not very Jedi Academy to me, though. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, NPC allies. Uh, use the homestead rules, but I would increase the obligation cost to plus two to represent the dangers of having someone else know about the Jedi Academy who could be interrogated for information if captured or decides to cash in on a bounty or two. Interesting. Interesting. Oh, Ender Melchior in chat says, oh yeah, Jedi Academy business, Kyber Crystal Mine. Because <laughs> the Empire would be all over that. Um, yeah, I'm going I'm to get to that. Hang on, I'll, I'll get there, I'll get there. Uh, training facility, this is sort of the whole point of the Academy. Uh, for that upgrade, you'd, you'd want to have, you'd be training multiple Force users, a very difficult and dangerous option. If you're going to do that, I would give that an obligation of plus five. That party obligation plus five. Party Hell. obligation plus five. Hells, yeah. Is that is that too little? Um, Possibly. Although, if you think about it, that's a 10% chance every game that the Empire rolls it. Yeah, good point. Okay, never mind. Uh, research library. This is almost as dangerous as training facility as this represents a trove of lost force knowledge. Because of this, increase the co- I would increase the cost to 6000 or, or an obligation cost of plus three. Okay. Um, infirmary, mechanics garage, landing bays, those can all be pretty much as is from the homestead rules. Just rip them out and put them in. Totally, yeah. Uh, laboratories, armories, and command centers also could be used pretty much as is. Um, I would use an obligation of plus two for a lab or command center and plus three for the armory. Makes sense. Uh, and I would not have the armory include things like lightsabers. Yeah, no. <laughs> no. No. Uh, special orders. Now, here's where we're getting into some of the weird stuff that business have access to. Um, 
special orders could be used, but I recommend that if you're going to do that, double the cost for the same reason as to increase the NPC ally. You got someone else there who can get you access to rare and hard to find items, but they kind of know about you and they kind of know that you're dealing into some really black market dangerous treasonous stuff and that's if you're going to allow special orders anyway i mean it's so damn risky and for the same reason i mean would you allow like kind of rounding out the list i'm looking at the list right now wholesale prices or specialized license would you even allow those things from businesses homesteads i don't recommend it no i don't recommend it you're not going to be buying lightsaber crystals or holocons in bulk (laughs) no no amount of special licensing is going to get past the will of the emperor concerning Jedi and Force users in the galaxy. It's not going to um, happen. And it's like, you know, it's not going to happen. It's like it's like the the Kyber crystal mine that's that's a neat idea, but by the same focus, I mean the although it's not canon, the legends has a pretty strong uh, legend stories tell us pretty specifically what the empire did to the any any location containing Kyber crystals. Dude, the 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 chapter in the book tells us what the, the empire, empire did. did. Yeah. They parked star destroyers over the world. <laughs> pretty, pretty much, um, and there's not many places in the galaxy you can find them. Um, right? Yeah, I suppose you could take out a crate dragon or three, and hey, we got some pearls. <laughs> um, maybe if maybe maybe there's one inside. Um, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. That's that's just that's just interesting to me. I, hmm, uh, hmm. Okay. So that's our rampant speculation. If you want to try to bring this sort of mechanic into a Force and Destiny party, um, take those for what they will. Use them if you want. Use them if you don't. Just something that we kind of came up with in speculation until they might release such rules later on. Who knows? I like it. Very nice. Very nice. Okay. Well, all right. Um, I think it's time, gentlemen, to move into our build-off. What do you say? Love it. I love it. Okay. All right. So in a strange twist, we're going to now apply the advice we've been giving you for the past two episodes, and we're going to put our ideas to task with a build-off. So each of the GMs have decided to create their own holding uh, with as much flavor and usefulness as we can muster, and you guys will be able to tell us which holding you think is the best uh, by heading uh, to the dedicated episode thread in the Order 66 podcast boards at d20radio.com slash forums where a poll will be set up for you to tell us who has won. Now, considering that this is a contest very similar to our, our well, isn't that special build-off, we decided to keep things a little fair and set some guidelines for ourselves. <laughs> um, right, so what are the rules that we had to abide by? Here's the rules. And the rules are important because we decided to do this evenly. There's three GMs, and my gosh, three kinds of holdings. How does that work? Amazing, right? So one of us was going to take a homestead. One of us was going to take a um, a business. One of us was going to take a base. So to keep all that fair, the first rule was history. We have to name the holding and provide its setting, its history. Okay, where is it? What is it? Rule two, the core focus of the holding. What does the business homestead do? In other words, what skill does it grant as well? Or what does the base focus on? What kind of base is it? What does it do? Um, next, number three, two memorable NPCs for the holding. Yeah, we know that there will be more than that or less than that in a real game, but we wanted to keep it even. Um, and last rule, five upgrades for the holding. 
Um, no more, no less, regardless of cost. We don't care. We just found this to be kind of the best way to keep it even. Yeah? Yeah. So those are the rules we abided by. And um, let's get into our builds. Uh, you, who wants to go first? You guys want? Do you guys want me to go first? I got, I, I got the homestead. Do you guys want to go in order? Yeah, why don't we? Let's sure, go let's go in order. That sounds good. Okay, okay. Well, I'll go first then. Um, I I got homestead, and my hold is a is my homestead is the Flying T Ranch. Um, <laughs> from a history and core focus perspective, my holding is a homestead that specializes in ranching an unusual creature, Thrantus. Um, and Phil, I think you actually made a side comment about Thranta ranching in our last episode. I did. Um, and I really was taken by the concept. So the, the Flying T Ranch started as a way to preserve the common riding Thranta um, after the destruction of its homeworld, Alderaan. Um, Thrantas are all native to Alderaan, although they've been exported to several worlds. Um, and these are, these are magnificent leathery skin animals that pretty much resemble flying manta rays when you get down to it. Um, <laughs> except that they're, they're not like birds. They actually have gas bladders that keep them aloft. Um, right. So they have this long history in the legend stories of serving as a very noble flying mount. And with Alderaan's destruction, they've become somewhat of an endangered species. Um, and the demand for them among riders and beast wranglers and others is quite high. Um, you know, having an animal that you can ride that can fly and stay buoyant on its own <laughs> um, is handy. So we have the Flying T Ranch. Now, the Flying T Ranch is located on Bespin, uh, just a few hours uh, thrant of flight from the infamous Cloud City. Um, Bespin actually has a storied history in the EU Nay legends of actually being home to Thranta colonies, right? Uh, right. Because the, the, the Thranta riders, which are actually a troupe of circus-like performers who do aerial acrobatic shows for tourists, are based on Bespin. Um, and uh, basically the Flying T uh, will supply fresh steeds to the riders, um, as well as other collectors and handlers. So that's my basic concept. Um, the ranch itself is a repulsor-driven floating compound, very similar to Cloud City. Um, but obviously nowhere near as big, surrounded by numerous pens uh, in a 10-square-kilometer perimeter. Now, these pens, you know, how do you pen in Thrantas? Basically, they're floating energy buoys that are linked to create a high-pitched frequency that Thrantas really dislike. <laughs> um, so, in other words, it keeps the Thrantas flying in the pens, as it were. Almost like an invisible fence. Pretty much. Um, so as a ranch, uh, the Flying T will provide each PC a permanent career skill of survival, very useful for riding those Thrantas. Mm. Um, memorable NPCs. So I had fun with this. Two of the, two of the more memorable NPCs who work the ranch, okay? The first one, I named him Crassus Colto. <laughs> he is an aging former Thranta rider, and he's still covered with the signature colorful tattoos and paint of the riders. And Crassus was basically, um, he was injured very badly after falling from his mount. And he fell so far that the pressure of Bespin's inner atmosphere did serious permanent damage to his lungs and his internal organs, as you can Ooh. quite imagine. Um, he was rescued by a remote droid, which is a pretty ignoble fate for a proud Thranter rider. Um, mm. That, coupled with his injuries, prompted his rather shameful retreat from the Thranter riders. But he's still very proud of his heritage, and he has understandably, a real preternatural relationship with the Thrantas, gladly able to use his skills for the flying T. Um, he speaks little and obviously wheezes with each <laughs> breath. 
Um, so that's my first memorable NPC, Crash's Colto. Okay. You'll have to forgive me. I'm going to call it the Flying J at one point in time. Oh, yeah? Um, why? Because that's all up and down the highways around here. The, they're all, oh, all the, the truck stops are Flying Js. The flying Js, you're right. Oh, God. Okay. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So um, my second NPC um, is a bit different. This is Mary Astry. Um, and I wanted to take a concept with her. Basically, she's 16 years old, and it made sense for me um, to have an Alderanian exile be an NPC who works the ranch. Sure. So sure. she's an Alderanian who's really struggling to cope with the destruction of her home world, and she's doing this by latching onto a piece of that world, and that piece is the Thrantis. So Mary was in the mid-rim on a school trip during her home world's destruction, and afterwards she regrouped with other Alderanian exiles, but she really couldn't find any purpose, and she began skipping across the Outer Rim. Her family's obviously dead. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, eventually, she arrived at Bespin, and she watched a Thranta air show performed by the Thranta riders that kind of changed her life. In, in these majestic, displaced beasts of her lost home, she found purpose again. And so, though she's very young, she's training hard to become a rider um, and to give the Thrantas the love and the care that were stripped away from her. And to counterpoint um, Crash's Colto, she is wildly talkative, okay, and <laughs> very eager and always anxious to chat with the PCs about their adventures. You can picture her just kind of bobbing up and down behind them, you know, you know, what about this? What about that? What about, you know, and, and yeah, so those are, those are my two NPCs. Those are awesome. Uh, so what upgrades did you end up taking for the, for the uh, Flying T Ranch? So the Flying T has the following upgrades. The five upgrades are this. Um, improved fork, uh, one, uh, improved core focus. I figure the ranch has been operational for a little while, and the demand for Thrantas is increasing, so the ranch now is going to now generate 100 credits for each PC every month. Okay? Cool. Kind of handy. Cool. Two improved security upgrades. Um, the homestead has reinforced fences, which represent the Thranta pens that I described earlier, um, mm-hmm. and a security camera system as its second upgrade, because... And they're obviously going to be floating camera drones in order to monitor the herd remotely. Um, you can't just look out the window and see how the herd's doing. <laughs> nice. You know, they're flying herd. Um, sure. Uh, my last two upgrades were spent on an... Uh, I, I really like this one. Um, I spent one on an NPC ally. So the Flying T Ranch has recently hired a dedicated doctor, except he he's a vet. <laughs> 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 All right. Uh, Nils Nush. Uh, is a bubbly Chadra fan, vet, um, who finds finds the Thrant is very comforting. And his time is spent tending to the herd, but of course, he's still a doctor from an NPC standpoint. He's got his skills in medicine, right? And those are going to apply equally as well to the residents of uh, the Flying T and the PCs if they need patching up. But, you know, he's the kind of guy who's going to gripe about the fact that he's a vet, not a doctor. I shouldn't be doing You know what I mean? I'm going to be giving you a sedative. What the hell is that? It's a standard sedative. That's a harpoon. What are you doing? Hold still. <laughs> All right, so I figure I could have You'll a lot. You'll feel a slight prick. You'll feel a slight prick. Ah! I am feeling a slight prick. You prick. Um. Uh. So I thought I could have a lot of fun with that. And then my last upgrade um, I spent on a landing bay. Um, the homestead, I figure, has an open landing bay that can accommodate up to a Silhouette 5 vehicle um, and smaller vehicles totaling Silhouette 5. Um, not only would this be a direct landing point for freighters that are taking Thrantas off-world entirely, um, but could also serve to hold smaller uh, speeder vehicles that perhaps, uh, you know, Dr. Dr. Nush um, or the others would need to be able to get to the herd in a hurry if they need to and, and, and 
do that. But also it can be when it's when it's not occupied by any ships can serve as a stable infirmary zone um, for Dr. Nush to treat the Thrantas who need to be sedated because obviously the things are big. (laughs) They're really big. So (laughs) it made sense to me to have this open landing bay, basically, you know what I mean? Almost like a landing platform. Um, Sweet. So that's that's the Flying T Ranch. That's my that's my uh, my homestead. I uh, I uh, I like it. I like it a lot. So there it is. I I like it too. I think it's kind of uh, cool. Uh, Dave, you had businesses. What is your business? So my business is the. <clears throat> let me see if I can get this right. The Tashi Station 24-hour fly-through pawn and blaster speeder part cybernetic adult gift bounty hunter discount Jedi outlet. Do you guys oh. remember this? Oh, no. So you need to come on down to Tashi Station 24-hour fly-through pawn and blaster speeder part cybernetic adult gift bounty hunter discount Jedi outlet. You need to get yourself a limited edition Order 66 collectible anniversary tunic. While you're here, we got Bantha Burgers, Shrill Tech, Cable Eyes, and Bithwax, 42 flavors of Edible Hut Loungewear, and slightly used fixed rubber TIE Fighters. That means a complete tool set to Karelian certified and Imperial Standard Hydra Spanners, mesh tape, power bars, data cores, and droid lube for the kids. All the selection, none of the rejections. So come in person and see us in our Holonet data store. We got what you need here at Tasha Station 24 hour fly through Pond and Blaster Speeder Park Cybernetic Adult Gift Bounty Hunter Discount Jedi Outlet. Tashi, Tashi, what the Empire needs. Just that fact, your head on Tatooine off the Karelian run. <laughs> old got, school yo yeah you remember full on gamer who coincidentally after I, I I did this and then he posts on the forum yesterday after we hadn't heard from him in years yeah, it's been, oh a, it's been a couple years since he posted yeah that was old school like old order like OG order 66 podcast back when we were doing saga that yeah. was from that actually came in like on our one year anniversary show in 2009 so I decided to re- resurrect that and of course this is a, re- a retail facility so it's going to give negotiation but so this was founded now seven and a half years ago (laughs) and um the business is located just outside anchorhead of course on tatooine and has earned a place in the galaxy to get these eclectic items that sometimes may or may not be strictly speaking legal bithwax and edible hut loungewear (laughs) uh yeah so uh you know the uh, the outlet made a name for themselves with the Order 66 podcast anniversary tunics, and uh, they have become the exclusive retailer of the Power Converters line of lingerie. <laughs> so oh the business uh, the business has grown to several pods: um, speeder parts, cybernetics, course guns, pawn shop. And those that are familiar with the galaxy would call it the Buckies of the Carillion Run. Oh wow! If y'all aren't familiar with Buckies, it's like a giant store that's right on the highway in Texas that has just like every little thing of every little genre you could think of. Hey, look! Here's a jar of pickles. What's that? That's an assault rifle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. And um, okay, so the t- uh, two NPCs that you might find uh, in the, in this well known establishment, uh, the first is uh, Jack's Dusty. This is an elderly guy who'll tell you back in his day when it was much harder to do anything these young whippersnappers take for granted. Jack's an old man, but you know he loves his Twi'leks, and he's positioned himself as the person of choice if you're looking for that off the record hookup with one of the power converters. 
and uh, also specializes in the not so wholesome aspects of the business, like uh, the flavored edible hut lingerie, <laughs> which is really yummy. Uh, in addition to all the other various adult uh, gifts that he has under his roof, so uh, yeah, Jax is a he's a dirty old man. <laughs> um, and then the guy that that takes care of the day to day operations and, and procures a lot of the stuff is a uh, it's a guy named Bob Fortuna. Uh, he has a brother who gets con- co- very consistently gets rare and hard to find items through his connections with the uh, underworld because of his employer. And a portion of the outlet's sales are kicked back to that hut for uh, for tribute and for a little bit of protection now and again. <laughs> uh, Bob uh, Bob Fortuna is a nondescript Twi'lek who some say is, is more handsome than his brother, but he dows and downplays such associations, preferring to live in the shadow of his younger sibling. But he's uh, he's made connections over the years and was uh, key to obtaining, obtaining some of these uh, special licenses. And so the upgrades for the facility are this. Uh, they have specialized license to handle restricted items. You know, although the huts help with the black market affairs, this uh, license kind of lends legitimacy and helps the authorities uh, when they might get a little bit frisky at times. Um. <laughs> They have special orders. Um, all I'll really say about that is, did you hear the list off the top? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but just in case you're interested in all 24 brands of edible uh, hut lingerie, they do have wholesale prices. So you'll you'll have low, you know, so it's it's low priced. So along with all the eclectic stuff, you're going to get the best prices, even with the galactic economy going through it up and down. Oh. And of course, it needs a little bit of security because we do have some really cool stuff at the uh, at the outlet, and uh, <laughs> the security droid pretty much is all that they really need because they do have protection from the huts, who don't often forget, and they're not distracted from the prize of credits. Uh-huh. Yeah, and then of course the last one is, uh, you know, increase the core focus because well, duh, we 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 handle a lot of stuff. <laughs> Gotta make you. You have to make money with 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 a, an array of products like that. You have to be earning money. That's right. Oh, <laughs> awesome! Oh, thank you for resurrecting that old bit. <laughs> that was great. That was. Uh, th- I, I'm still I'm still cracking up over Bob Fortuna. Uh, <laughs> I love Bob Fortuna. Oh man. Okay. Very very nicely done. Okay. So Phil, what about you, man? You're the base. I have Takeover Station. During the final days of the Clone Wars, a great space battle took place over the planet Beta Rama. Two full attack squadrons of warships fought and died in orbit around this ultimately unimportant planet. Republic forces that fought there were lost in the shuffle during the reorganization to the Galactic Empire, and there were precious few survivors from the Separatists who even knew the battle took place. Wrecked hulks of warships orbited Beta Rama for decades until an Alliance scout ship discovered the massive debris field. Searching the wreckage for a useful material, the scout team discovered that a Trade Federation battleship was left mostly intact. A barrage had knocked out the the ship's propulsion, and the port arm had blown free two bulkheads away from the central core and engineering. After some examination and rehabilitation from the Alliance Corps of Engineers, the remnants of the Separatist warship Hostile Takeover had been converted into a stationary outpost renamed by the Alliance Takeover Station. 
Epic. <laughs> the core focus of Takeover Station is that it is a secret base that the Alliance can launch strikes throughout the Dalchun sector, as well as other targets of opportunity along the southeast end of the Corellian Run. Ironically enough, this would put them within striking distance of Tashi Station. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, per the rules, this is a core base that's effectively a space station. Okay, Phil, uh, Phil, uh, I got to give you 15 gold stars for the idea that there's a Trade Federation warship that was called the Hostile Takeover. <laughs> Dude, I had a I, in in one campaign in my original long shot campaign, I had a a uh, banking clan frigate that was still operating called the Deferred Interest. Oh man. <laughs> I, I, I've got this naming convention when it comes to separatist warships that are based on like corporates and banking clans and that sort of thing. Dude. I'm like, what's a badass name that sounds like it came from a banker? <laughs> you face the might <laughs> of foreclosure. <laughs> yes, yes. You know that there's a, 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 a banking clan warship out there called the foreclosure. <laughs> The sh- and, and and it's got a, an accompanying little frigate that pop, that putters along with it called the short sail. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's its uh what's what's the what's the ship that what's the shuttle that pops off the ghost? Um Oh yeah 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 I, I forget what the Phantom? The Phantom, yes, yes, it's yeah. the short sail. Oh god. The, the short sail. Okay, okay. So so what upgrades does Takeover Station have? Okay. Um, the five upgrades went as follows. Hangar and repair bay. This is the purpose of the base, to provide support for fighter squadrons. I'm taking the selection three times to allow for a total of 60 silhouettes worth of fighters. God. That's enough for 18 fighters, one and a half squadrons, and enough space left over for a shuttle or freighter up to silhouette five in size. It's actually a little more than that. You can actually think you could squeeze in a, a 19th fighter, but... A squadron and a half is a, is a nice round number. Oh. Uh, it is a training facility as well. The massive debris field is a great place to train starfighter pilots. The half squadron of fighters is assigned to the training group, the Minox. Minox share their fighters with one other member of the 12 group squadron for a full squadron of 12 assigned to six fighters. If any ships or pilots are lost from the main graveyard squadron, the Minox are the first place the base commander looks for replacements. And the final upgrade that I took was an NPC ally, the mechanic. We'll detail them next. I didn't take increased core focus because it just didn't feel right for this facility. No. Um, it's, it's a bust. It, it, uh, at its core, it's a busted up ship that's being used as a base. And it's not really on the beaten path. So being able to reduce the cost of getting or reduce the rarity of certain items to acquire them doesn't really fit in with this base. And I honestly, with the restriction of five upgrades, I needed a mechanic, I wanted a training facility, and I wanted to cram as many fighters as I possibly could into this beast. That's pretty cool, man. So the two NPCs. Uh, There are many techs and support personnel at the base, but two members of the facility really leap out as memorable to me. Hoskar, a Wookiee chief mechanic who is in charge of maintaining and repairing the starfighters of Graveyard and Minox squadrons. His family is either incarcerated on Kashyyyk or they've gone missing, taken for imperial slave labor somewhere else in the galaxy. And I don't mean he doesn't know which. Some of his family is incarcerated on Kashyyyk. Some are off somewhere else in the Empire as slave labor. 
he vents his frustration on the pilots of Takeover Station, berating them for every ding, dent, scratch, gouge, blast, or loss of his snub fighters. <laughs> nice. He is all bark with the squadron pilots, though. His bite is being saved for the Empire. Very nice. The second NPC is the station administrator, TV-38, Trait. A red and gray separatist tactical command droid serves as the base's administrator and tactical advisor. Trait was actually still functional on the hostile takeover when Alliance scouts found the wreck. When the scouts spoke with Trait and brought the droid up to speed on galactic happenings, Trait eagerly wished to assist the Alliance in their war against the Empire. Trait is a cold and calculating droid, originally recommending the most expedient means to victory, no matter the cost of life. But the droid is learning to refrain from such suggestions and is, to, and is working to find the best solutions at the lowest cost. Trait is still a separatist battle droid, though, one that does not wish to see the Republic restored, but does work to damage and destroy the empire that it became. And that is Takeover Station. That's good. Okay, hey, more applause for that. Wow, wow. That's, Thank you. <clears throat> that's incredible. These, the, and, and these are three solid facilities. You can drop any one of these three facilities into any campaign. I, and that's what I love about what you guys came up with. I mean, yeah, Tashi Station uh, drawn on full-on gamers. Uh, a bit from what was it 2009 you said yeah that's hilarious but that's memorable and it's useful that's that's a place you can go to get crap you know the the crazy crap pick up a power converter (laughs) you can pick up anything yeah pretty much you pick up a used tie fighter throw in a set of edible hot under hot lingerie as a bonus and the uh the thronta farm that's that's that. That's a subplot, uh, or, or that's a that's a destination in and of itself. Oh, was, adventures uh, happen there. These uh, are three solid. These are three solid locations. These are very good locations. I'm. I'm. This is awesome. So, guys, I hope this little build off has shown you how we can pull together really everything we detailed last episode and everything we've detailed this episode. You know, following the rules as written into a really you know unique locale that can not only provide those incredible GM plot points we've talked about, but also give your PCs a lot of resources and usefulness as they continue to operate in the galaxy at large. Um, if you guys want to vote on who uh, has made the best holding, you can, of course, right now <clears throat> head to d20radio.com slash forums, Head to the Order 66 podcast boards, and you will find a dedicated thread for episode 60. And in there, you will find a poll, and you can actually vote on which holding you like the best. Mwahaha. So, guys, I've really enjoyed these last two episode discussion, and I got to give big props to um, Phil, who, dude, you spearheaded this, taking that original question from Richard uh, Buxton, which was a really good one. And Richard, I hope you're listening because I hope we've given you, I hope we've given your question due, man. Two episodes, here you go. Um, but really, it dovetailed into a lot of other questions we were getting from a lot of other listeners. Um, and when, when we proposited the idea to some of our other listeners, they were like, no, this is a good idea. You should run with it. And we, we, we did. And, man, this, is, uh, this has been a highly enjoyable two-parter. So thank you, Phil, for uh, pushing forward with this. I've really, really enjoyed this discussion, guys. Very, very good stuff. I hope, I hope our listeners have enjoyed it as well. Absolutely. It was a good time. Oh, yeah. Well, how about we talk about something not enjoyable? Okay. Donald Trump? Mm, 
God, I hope not. <laughs> oh, wait. No, never mind. We can't do that. Sorry. Sorry. There is a great disturbance in the force. I got a bad feeling about this. You must unlearn what you have learned. When good games go back. Alright, I have some hot sports opinions about this. Let's just get to it. Well, you gotta wait for the music to die down. No, we don't. <laughs> Hey, what's up, Dave? Hey, when good games go bad, man. <laughs> All right, so we're back, right? Happily and somewhat sadly. That's a weird dichotomy, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, so the semi-regular show segment is back. We devote to uh, GMs, GMs and gamers that need help when game moments go awry, confusion, regret that fester around the dice. And... Yes, at W Triple GB, we aim to give the best advice we can for those situations hairier than a Wookiee's derriere. Recently, no, GM Hooli, it's not. We're I'm answering the chat, chat room. Recently, Ebak the Cat communicated a lengthy but good issue with his game, and that sparked a massive discussion on our forums, and it drives to a very meaningful question for all the GMs. And here's, here's his issue, and it's a little bit abridged. Here we go. All right, he says, I have a problem, and only... D20 Radio can help me. Aw. That's us. I'm in a teeny bit of a crisis right now regarding one character and player in my Tuesday night session and balancing combat encounters. He's a smuggler pilot who's bought into the heavy with 642 earned XP, 762 total. So, yeah, he's a badass. Brawn 5, agility, f- Brawn 4, agility 5. God. Through most of the campaign, he's been using a DXH heavy blaster rifle that consistently gains gets him 20 average damage with his weapon. That's annoying, but manageable. I mean, once I exceeded his wound threshold, he was out of the fight for the foreseeable future. Now, he has managed to purchase a heavy repeating blaster. And after using auto fire with it today, his first volley resulted in 37 damage. Which led to me spitting out my cola here and again, now and again. The result was that what was supposed to be a frightening runaway encounter based on the scene from Rebels with the asteroid, uh, on the asteroid with the Frynox, actually resulted in one-shotting the Mama Frynox. What? (laughs) As a GM, I like to provide challenge to my characters that they're able to overcome, but generally not with such ease. As a person, even the mere suggestion that I will damage his weapon with threat or despair results in moping and whining. I'll have an editorial on that in a moment. I'm sure you will. I have discussed my concern with this player. However, he is a D&D player <coughs> excuse me, who cannot get out of the mentality despite my constantly going on about how different the system is and how it's not focused on the best equipment and looting. His response most time is my enjoyment is about being the guy in the room with the biggest, most powerful gun. He is most definitely a combat-focused player. Part of me feels... It is my fault as a GM for not stamping on this from the start. I've always been part of the opinion that FFG, Star Wars RPG, is line is focused on telling interesting stories with interesting characters not being the biggest badass in the room, and there's always a bigger fish. Now the gun is restricted, but that doesn't stop his average 20 damage weapon. 
Plus, if I put the group in a social scenario, it's mostly a Toydarian doing the checks. That's cool you have a Toydarian. That's freaking awesome. Mm. He's the party face, of course. Plus, most of their time is spent in a little town in wild space where the party's bounty hunter is now the sheriff. And there's no way he would restrict the smuggler from using the weapon in the town he and the group effectively run. I don't want to balance combat encounters to cater to him and the Mando bounty hunter in the group, since that will result in enemies of the Toydarian and the Arcanian. Ken Doctor would have no hope in hell of doing any meaningful damage to. Mm. I'll be honest, it's spoiling my fun, yet I can't do anything about it without spoiling his fun. And I have no idea what to do anymore. Thank God the campaign's wrapping up in five months, and thank God he isn't, on, he isn't in next year's campaign is mostly what I can think about. I feel like a failure as a GM for not being able to foresee and solve this problem. I've been doing this for a year and a half, and I still feel like a rookie. Oh, well, guess dude. what? You still are. Yeah, no, not so much a rookie. No, dude. I eBay. You, you don't get um, what I'm saying is you don't get to be a seasoned GM in a year and a half. No, so I, I think he's being a little hard on himself. You, okay, I agree, dude. You're being way too hard on yourself, and don't beat yourself up about this. Um, I want to talk about that, but the, listen, the fact that you can even recognize that this is a problem puts you head and shoulders above rookie GMs. Okay. Yeah. So, totally. so you need to freaking stop beating yourself up. And Ebac, you're a common poster in our community, and you're a very strong community member. And I know you got your head on your shoulders, right? As a GM, stop beating yourself up, man, bro. Seriously, E-back, for real. the cat, the e- wonderful, wonderful cat. Ebac <laughs> is the man. So, no, seriously. Okay. Well, we'll we'll talk about that. But lay it out, guys. Phil, you want to go first on this? Sure. Uh, as I was going, I had some notes on this. Um, first, Ebeck, sadly, this happens. Uh, the GM's fun and the player's fun sometimes are not 100% compatible. That's just a fact of life. Um, and, and that's okay. That's okay for you. That's okay for the player. But let's address some of the issues that you brought up with some of the some scenes that you've been having. Mm. Um, now, I don't know about you guys, but if someone brings an e-web to the negotiation table, I don't care if he's not the person talking. All negotiations are off. I don't care what the topic of discussion is. I don't care what we we're planning. I don't care what the meeting was for. You bring in a heavy gun like that, and I'm going to assume that you brought it there either because you don't trust me or, or me being the NPC that your PCs are dealing with or you're a psychopath. And you bring that gun around for fun. I want nothing to do with a group that does that. From an NPC in-game standpoint, I will immediately cut off negotiations and I will leave. Start doing that a couple times and eventually he'll get the hint that he needs to bring something a little less obscene. Um, If the sheriff doesn't want to restrict the smuggler from carrying around the e-web, have the town get uppity. Have them complain to the sheriff. Have them be nervous around the PCs, especially this guy. Have them want nothing to do with the smuggler as long as he has it on his person. Have a concerned citizen speak bluntly to the PC sheriff and demand that he do something about it, or they'll elect a new sheriff, one who will enforce the laws in their town. And as I was thinking about this, I just thought of something else. Have a Magnificent Seven scenario, but from the other side. If the sheriff won't do anything, if the sheriff's not going to stop this guy, maybe the town goes out and hires seven guys to come help them from this band of smugglers who's running the town. Have the PCs realize that they're being bad guys. Mm. Just a thought. 
Um, the Tordarian face and the Arcanian doctor, by the way, should not be worried about dealing damage. That's a D&D way of thinking. They should be looking for ways to contribute to the encounter with their skill sets that, that they're designed for. I've got a technician in one of my games who barely fires a shot. She's constantly looking for computers and machines to play with to alter the battlefield. Um, so worrying about changing the combat encounter to up it to the point where the Tordarian and the Arcanian aren't able to affect it, design your encounters and add some things into the encounters so that their skill sets can contribute. Go back and listen to the list. The list 2.0. Go back and listen to the list. Every encounter, whether it's even if it's combat-focused, should have a way for skillful characters who are not combat-focused to use their skills to their advantage and influence the combat in some very strong, concrete way. And finally, through it all, you know you have only five months left. Finish the arc and the game and move on to the next. There are some folks that we don't game with anymore. They're still good friends, but we just don't mix well with our RP styles and goals. It happens. If this guy isn't your Star Wars ideal, then maybe don't invite him to the next Star Wars game. If you're running another D&D game, invite him along. It's his thing. He'll have fun. You'll have fun. It'll be a good time. But if if you know that he's not going to be if he's not going to fit into what you want for the game, then finish the arc and, and end it and move on and just don't invite him next time. Dave, you said you had an editorial. I have a minor editorial. <clears throat> Go for it. Uh, first, though, I want to echo um, that I agree with you in terms of uh, GM fun and player fun being, uh, in my opinion, very rarely equal to each other, and most of the time it's not even a zero-sum game. Yeah. Um, and and you guys said it. In, encounter structure is going to be really key here, right? So you've got a min max, or you know that. Mm-hmm. So you know, give your BBEG adversary two. No, no, four. Or yeah, I mean, <laughs> no, you know what four. I'm saying, dude. Dude, seven hundred XP, four. Are you kidding? Yeah, me? you you know that this dude is going to go after him, right? So the other in the party or can and will be able to take meeting groups or others or. or you know, whatever, but you know that the that that the pride factor is going to get Blaster McBlasterson going in the direction of the biggest threat. Um, yeah. I also agree with Phil that, and this, this is really making me crazy, by the way, that I'm agreeing with Phil again. But there should be some social outs in every encounter you're open to, and some other support that you potentially could find. Environmental controls, other items that can help the party without respect to uh, actual combat. You know, this is your doctor and. And, and the, your face guy that can do stuff, right? <clears throat> all right. Let me address the pouting. Who cares, all right? <laughs> if the guy is going to be that big a min-maxer and he's going to put a target on his gun, shoot at it. I mean, he's he's inviting you to do it by by, you know, I don't care what you, I mean... There's lots of ways to do that, right? This guy has become a legend for, and he's got a target. And, you know, somebody's going to take out his beloved gun. You know, don't do it in the dickish, you know, GM way. You know, say, oh, well, you know, three threat, you drop your gun and it falls down an endless shaft. Don't do that. But, you know, find a way to take it out of the picture and he's got to use a backup. And then something I had written and Hooli said the same thing in the, um, in the in the uh, in the chat room is, you know, take him out of his comfort zone. 
and send the party into an area that they have to check their weapons. And if he tries to do combat anyway, set the stage that there are dire repercussions for anyone attempting to usurp the no-weapon policy of the starport, for example, that they're docking with. If he persists, let them know in no unreasonable terms that if he sets off the countermeasures, he will die. And if he persists with his little whiny bitch, then put him down. <laughs> I mean, that's it. You know, so, and, you know, and that's, that's, you know, even when he wants to get this awesome crap, you know, give it a tracker, introduce more obligation, make him a marked man. I don't, you know, there's so many awesomely evil things you can do as a GM that don't come across as blatantly evil. But, I mean, you don't have to deal with that, dude. I mean, you really don't. Of course, the best, the best thing, and you, you've learned this now through this, the best thing is not to let it get out of uh, out of hand in, in in the first place, right? Yeah. So once you start seeing it go down that direction, then start messing with the weapon. Then you know, start start messing with uh, circumstances around how he can possibly use that weapon. I love Phil's idea of having the town rise up, and you know, Wyatt Earp shows up. Right. So. Yeah, and and they're asking in the chat, like, how can he wield it? Um, he actually, well, yeah, Braun four with the heavy spec. Yeah, with the heavy spec, he he uh, the, he um, uh, Ebeck actually went into the guy's build on our forums, and he was like, it was like, no, he can wield it. Um, uh, he really can. Look, here's here's my here's my thing on this. <clears throat> I agree for the most part with what you guys have said. My my main takeaways on this are, yeah, it sucks that Ebeck. Look, you're, you're beating yourself up about this. It sucks that he got into this situation in the first place, okay? But honestly, you live and learn. And it's one of those things that now, from now on in your future games, I doubt you're going to let it get to this point again. So you got to live and learn with that. But the bottom line is, how do you deal with it now? I really have to echo the idea that both Dave and Phil have said that I understand that his buddy and fellow PC is the sheriff of the town, so he lets him walk around with it. That doesn't mean that it's still a socially acceptable thing to do. I get it. If I'm in a small town and my friend is the chief of police and he lets me walk around with an, with a with a with a submachine gun on my hip and an AK-47 on my back, um, I may not get arrested by the local constabulary or fine for doing so, but people are going to run the other way when they see me. They're not going to want to talk to me. They're not going to want to do business with me. Um, at the very least, and any type of encounter where he shows up with something like that, as Phil said, it should be completely off the rocker. Completely. That's that's what what I mean. NPCs should react as you would expect. What the heck is is that? You know, oh God, please don't kill us, don't kill us, don't kill us. I mean, it just it comes to that point. So there's a lot of reasonable expectations. The the one common in the D and D mentality for D and D players is that no one blinks an eye when you walk into the king's court with a broadsword strapped to your back because that's how all adventurers walk around. It seems. Sure. In Star Wars, this is not the case. You don't just get to do it, even if nobody's going to arrest you for it because you're in this unusual circumstance. You're going to freak people out, and you, you've got to use that. Um, the other thing too is, look, when it comes to damaging his uber awesome weapon. Don't I? I, I kind of disagree with Dave here, and maybe you agree with him. Take it with a grain of salt. I don't think you should go after his weapon. I think that's kind of dicky. But at the same time, I, what I don't think is dicky is you following the rules as written. And if the guy rolls threat and despair, you damage his weapon. It's in the rule book. Okay, that's not being a jerk. That's following the rules of the game. 
All right. Yeah, and that's that's what I mean by that. Use your use your threat, and he runs out of ammo. Yeah. Okay. He runs he runs out of ammo. Well, I'm sure the guy's clipped up, right? But even then, it's going to cost him a maneuver. It's going to cost him two if he's doing one, one to pull it, one to reload it. Okay, and then a, a couple strain maybe to get an attack off. But you know, damage the weapon, move it down as well. You know, you don't have to drop it down a a shaft or get rid of it completely, but you can still do damage to it. And when it's partially damaged, he's suffering setback dice and. At this level of play, uh, what was it? How much earned XP? Was it seven? Uh, six hundred forty-two. Six hundred and fifty, roughly earned XP. Hit the big adversary should be at adversary three, adversary four. At this point, he's going to roll despairs. He's going to roll threat. It's going to happen, and and you should be making it happen. My final thought on this, and this is the final question I'd leave to you two guys as well. Here's the real question here, and we're going to pose this back to Evac. At what point does the earned XP lead you to say it's time to end the campaign? It's not like there's a level max out here, but I'm sorry, it's at 650 earned XP, that's God status. Right. Yeah, I want to know how long you may be being a little too liberal with your XP. As yeah, well. Maybe he is. Well, hey, and I, I, you know what? I can't blame him for that because I am, <laughs> because it's fun, right? But sure. but it's it's one of those things. At that point, when you reach that level, eback, you should be thinking. In my personal experience, you should be thinking about winding the campaign up. I mean, when when I when I got party members that are reaching six hundred plus XP, it's like we're at the end of the campaign, not in five months, but like in the next session. Like, like, okay, let's, 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 let's end the campaign. That's, that's kind of a career arc right there. I mean, even if you said your Tuesday night game, by the way, if this is every Tuesday night for another five months, your campaign's a little long. It's dude. It may, it may be now if the players are having fun, maybe it's not too long. You know what I'm saying? But, but at that point you, you have to make a a choice and talk with your players about, okay, guys, you're so powerful because I mean, dude, at 650 earned XP, I would expect him to be doing this kind of damage. Would you guys disagree? At 650 earned XP? That's two entire specs. You can buy you can buy out two entire specs for that for 600 XP. I, I would expect him to be doing this. Yeah. I, I, would, I would fully expect it. And, and that's, that's just, I mean, I mean, if, if you're playing a Jedi character, that's force rating three or four at that point. Okay? If, if, you, if you do it right. That's, that's just, that's, that's monstrous. Um, I mean, so, so at that point, I mean, I'm not, I'm not dissing the abilities the character has. He's got 650 earned XP, but we just have to ask ourselves the question, is it then time to retire the character or retire the campaign? Is it, is it still fun at that point? Um, you know, when you're pasting everything because you can, you're 650, man, you're one of the most powerful people in the galaxy at that point. So I, I mean, what do you, what do you guys think? What's 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 our upper campaign limit here? I mean, <laughs> hard to say. As long as it takes to write the story, as long yeah. as it takes to tell the story. I know, I know. So, and uh, once you start getting the six six hundred, I got characters getting three hundred right now. That I'm like, this is kind of getting ridiculous. So, it it's it's really hard to say. No idea. So, I just, I, I, I don't know. Uh, 600, I can't even imagine the characters that's 
that he's dealing with the the entire specs. Um, who knows? Who knows? So, and it's it's it is a bit of a problem. But but I think if you uh, evac, if you take some of the advice that we've got, you know, or just tough it through. You know, if you're if it's a Tuesday night game, odds are you're playing two or three hours at a time. I mean, I've got a bi-weekly Wednesday night game that kind of operates the same way. Uh, they've been going for just about a year now, and maybe a little more than, and they're up in the 300. Well, yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They just got to about just just shy of 300 XP, and we play every other week with almost without fail. But it's yeah, Chris. I really don't know. I don't know at what point you say it's over because. I don't think I've gotten there with any of the games that I've played that had a chance to play in the system yet. I have a firm rule of 437 XP earned. Oh, it's a good number. <laughs> a good number. I like that number. That's a, that's, that's a solid know, number. That's just what I... And <clears throat> then, uh, oh, um, <clears throat> guys, if you don't mind, I'm going to have to bow out. My uh, little daughter got hurt in practice tonight. and Understood. She's uh, getting ready to call us. I guess she finished with the trainer just now. All right. Okay. Man. Well, good luck. Yeah, we 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 were we were thinking about that. Okay. Well, our thoughts are with her, man. Thank you for good your input, Dave. Oh yeah, you bet. I uh, sorry, I'm going to miss the last uh, 15 minutes or so, but it's all right. It's all right, man. Family first. All Family right. First. We'll see you guys. All right. Good night, Dave. Good night, Dave. Well, I hope that helps uh, Ebac somewhat. I mean, this is a tricky situation, and it, it's one of those things where you got to ask yourself when it's time to wrap up. And I know you know when the story's done, but gosh, if you're not having fun. I mean, Phil, if he's not having fun, why is he doing it? Yeah, yeah. You have to go where the fun is, and folks need to respect that. If it's not fun, you're just going through the motions. Yeah. So, I don't know. Maybe we've given you some good advice to help rein things in until it lasts, man, but maybe you want to consider wrapping the campaign early. Maybe. All right, well, if you guys have any uh, segments that you'd like to cover, any issues you want to go through for when good games go bad, you can, of course, head to the Order 66 podcast boards at d20radio.com slash forums. You can post it up there. Um, you can also PM us or email us, um, GM Chris, GM Phil, or GM Dave at d20radio.com. Um, we would, uh, we'd love to hear it and um, hopefully can provide you some good advice. But, uh... Indeed. Well, now it is time... Sans Dave, <laughs> mm. for this. He doesn't seem to take a hint, this guy. I was beginning to wonder if you'd got my message. Messages from the Edge. Boy, am I glad to hear your voice. I think it would be wise if you took advantage of my knowledge in this instance. And welcome to Messages from the Edge, our regular show segment where we take the time to answer your game and rules questions about the system. How can you get us these questions, you might ask? The easiest way is to travel to our forums and post it up. Again, d20radio.com slash forums. You can register, head to the podcast boards, you'll find a Messages from the Edge thread, and you can post your mind. And again, you can email it to us, uh, GM Chris, GM Dave, or GM Phil at d20radio.com. You can also... If you're brave enough, leave us a question via voicemail on the D20 Radio hotline at 262-D20-RADIO. It's 262-320-7234. And we have three questions this evening, Mr. Phil. 
That we do. We do. And our first question of the night comes from Bell Iblis, who is curious about move and silhouette size. With a good question, he says this. I've been researching force powers, particularly move with the the hurl <laughs> control upgrade. Rolf! All right, the, uh, the attack control upgrade, right? Um, my holocron says that the force user makes a discipline check with a difficulty equal to the silhouette of the object being thrown and makes a move power check as a part of the pool. From what I understand, normally a user doesn't choose what the force power does before rolling, i.e. one waits to see what pips come up before choosing the silhouette and range of the moving object. Is this just a way to balance move in combat, or can we just roll the force die first and then assemble the discipline pool? I realize my intellect isn't as great as my presence, but this just confuses me. You paid attention during ancient lore lectures at U of A, right? Thanks in advance. Kai Bellibliss. Well, it's a tough one. Um, well, oh, according to the books, they suggest that in, and infer that you're supposed to roll the discipline check at, with the force dice. That's what they put in. That's what they they write out in that chapter. But it does beg the question that when the difficulty is determined by the silhouette and the rules and devs have also said that you can always activate a lesser version of the power if you fail to generate the desired pips, what do you do? Now I've seen two GMs enact two I've seen GMs enact two answers for this question. Uh, the first one is to roll both the discipline check and the force dice at the same time. This means you'll decide on the silhouette you're going to use before you make the uh, before you make the check. If you don't roll enough pips but succeed on the discipline check, then maybe you move a smaller object and do less damage. Now, the second one is the one that I do typically in these situations. I roll the force dice first, then roll the discipline check. This lets the PC see what they can pull off and make the check against that difficulty for discipline. Because sometimes you've got a PC who also has enough, um, enough magnitude upgrades to be able to auto-fire. Yep. But they need to know if they're generating enough pips to even make that a possibility. Yep. And then that influences the difficulty. Yep. Absolutely. So what are the positives and negatives to both of these options? Well, the problem with option one is what Hooli outlined. The players yeah. kind of feel crappy if they're forced to win against the big difficulty, only not to generate enough light side pips. Some GMs like this, though, because it makes dark side pip expenditure more likely, more tempting especially when you're staring at successes for a silhouette 3 object, but only enough light side pips for a silhouette 1. <laughs> so what's the problem with option 2? Aside from the fact that it's arguably against raw. Yeah. Um, well, players who roll force dice first um, and then don't generate enough light side pips may be tempted to use some dark side pips and thus instantly gain conflict. But then, if they subsequently fail the discipline check, I've seen players get pissed because they're getting conflict for nothing. Okay? Right. And that can really tick off a player. So... Tough question. It's a tough question. <laughs> um, if you're going by the rules as written, I, I mean, it's, it says that you should roll them both at the same time, right? But GMs yeah. like, like yourself, um, and I'll be quite frank, me... Um, I let the player roll it separately. Mm -hmm. um, and, and yes, I've had players spend dark side pips, gain their conflict, and then fail the discipline check and get really pissed. Yeah. But that kind of comes with the territory. And to me, that's part of the dark side temptation. 
the dark yep. side will let you down. <laughs> uh, oh, oh, yes, it will. Oh, yes, it oh, will. Oh, yes, it will. Um, you know, but I, I don't know. I, I see, I, I, I see, I, I kind of see both sides to it. I mean, if you're going for a rules is written, Phil, what? It's really option one. Yeah. But I don't really see a problem with option two. And nor do many of the devs either. No, no. Um, not ones we've spoken to. In fact, several things said on this show um, in the past have hinted towards devs in their own games going for option two. Yeah. So I think that's kind of where it sits, man. Pretty much. Pretty much. Okay. Well, hope that helps some, Bellibliss. Um, mm-hmm. Now, our next question of the night is actually a call-in from GM Hooley, who has a very nice hypothetical about swoop racing that actually left us a bit stumped. <laughs> it did, it did. Uh, let's, let's hear what he has to say. Okay. G'day, hosts of the Order 66 podcast. GM Hooley here with a brand new question for you. In last night's session, my PCs managed to get themselves involved in a swoop race, Now, I had previously planned out the circuit, which consisted of 10 range bands, uh, with a mix of clear terrain, obstacles, and narrow passes. Now, the race went pretty well, uh, but during the session, the question of ramming, nudging, and outright dirty tactics causing the other race participants to run into things came up. Uh, Now, the best thing I came up with was uh, to do the nudging, etc., as an attack action, which was opposed by the other pilot. Now, this seemed fine at the time, but I would be interested in hearing your suggestions on uh, how to run those sorts of actions in a race. Uh, Thanks for answering, and I'm a rebel, and I always listen to the Order 66 podcast. (laughs) Very good question. Thoughts? Um, Well, I think you're on the right track, Hooli. Uh, the, swoop race, the swoop race is basically another form of a chase. Instead of trying to get away from the other participants, you're really just trying to get ahead of the pack and determine who, is, who else is where in that pack. And there are, no real, no, there are really no rules for ramming into another vehicle intentionally, not that I could find. And that's what stumped me. It's like I know. It's like I, I could swear they were in there, but they're not. Right. Here's what I would have done. I'd have ran it purely like a chase so that the train comes into play as per the chase sidebar and each of the vehicle chapters in the core rule books. Players would all be rolling against the difficulty of the terrain and the speed they're traveling at as normal. I'd let the dice decide if any opportunities arose for ramming into or, uh, or ramming into opposing racers. Uh, advantage could be spent on rubbing paint to add setback dice to opponent future rolls triumphs and more serious bumping and thumping, upgrading the opposition checks. If the opposition then rolls sufficient threat, three or more, that would be a minor collision, and if they roll a despair, I'd inflict a major collision to the hapless pilot's swoop. Now, it's important to note, there are collision rules in the book. Just not ramming rules. Right! That's the problem. There's collision, but not, okay, I want to intentionally collide with someone. What do I do? We know what happens when a collision occurs, just not how to initiate a manual collision. (laughs) Right. That's the problem. Um, Trying to intentionally ram their vehicle into another vehicle, I I think you're on the right track. I think an opposed pilot check is probably apt, but I would warn the player that they would be inflicting the same damage to their own vehicle as they would their opponents, a minor collision or a major collision if you if you screwed up hard enough. 
and they'd be moving to the back of the pack after the attempt, assuming they're still moving, uh, because they're focusing on ramming the other vehicle, not racing as fast or as hard as they can in the race. Yeah. So um, that's that's my feeling on it. I'm kind of with you. When I think about other races in the films, aside from obviously – so we have two great examples. Obviously, is the pod yep. race in episode one. The other is actually the speeder bike chase on um, on Endor. Precisely. Okay. Which is really one trying to get away or ahead from the other. And we see in both those examples lots of nudging and slamming. I mean, you remember the scout troopers slamming their speeders into uh, into into Luke and Leia's speeder, right? Oh, yeah. But that, that's, again, the beauty of this system is, is you know, as you're making your pilot check for the chase, that's how you can spend advantage. That's how you can spend triumph. Exactly. Um, is, is you do those things narratively. And again, if a PC really wants to, to manually do it and spend my time, I'm going to spend, I'm not, I'm not going to, that's the thing. If it's a chase, so you're not spending your action to roll for the chase. You're spending your action to intentionally ram someone else, which means you're automatically going to fail for the chase. So you're going to move back in the pack. Okay. Right. You're going to move behind. Now, maybe if it's a two-person chase, that's not that big of a deal for you. Maybe not. No. Okay. But if you're in the if you're in a pack of ten racers, and yeah. you're trying to win, yeah. There you go. There you go. Um, and and then I, th- I think an opposed piloting check is right on the right track. I think it absolutely makes sense, with a few caveats that I would add. Sure. Um, and this is where it gets a little sticky. Um, what you do not want to do is deny your players' abilities they have earned or equipment they have on their ship. Right. For example, if I'm going to try and trade paint with somebody, now, in a in a land speeder scenario, it is highly unlikely you're going to have shields, okay? Right. But if especially you, a swoop. Especially a swoop. It's, that's never going to happen. But if the situation occurs where you have a scenario like this and the vehicles have defense, that defense should apply to the opposed piloting check. Right. Right. It makes sense. Keep that in mind. Now, a more concrete thing, whereas your average swoop is not going to have defense, but there are, in some cases, very easy to earn talents that a lot of specs can get, especially in the ace career, that mm-hmm. allow you to apply defense to any vehicle you get in. Right. Okay. So you don't want to you don't want to strip that away from your players, and it, that means that that defense that that basically that setback die needs to apply to the opposed check. All right. And so if, yeah. if you have those one off scenarios, just make sure you're applying those abilities appropriately and you're giving the players the due that they took for getting those abilities in the first place. And even if the collision does happen, the good thing is, is that those talents that add defense to uh, that add defense to to ships, they will apply to the collision. The collision. You subtra- yeah, right, the minor collisions, you subtract 10 from every uh, 10 from every for every defense point you've got. Right, and, so, ma- and major, major, and major collisions is five for every defense point you've got. So if you've right. got defense and your opponent doesn't, a ramming action it actually makes a lot of sense. Be- it does because at that point, it, you, you, your, your damage from the collision will be less than your opponent's. Okay, right. if you have defense and they don't, so that's that's actually a very solid tactic to consider. But yeah, I, I think I think you're you're spot on, Phil, and I think Hooli's on the right track too. Just make sure that you apply defense when appropriate, and yeah, oppose pilot checks. It's what the system's made for. Absolutely. Okay, our last question tonight is a, actually a call in from our liner contest winner, Andrew Howell, aka Coma Jedi, um, and it's one that many old school Star Wars players have been asking about, really since the core rulebook dropped. 
Mm. Sensing people through the force, and I'm gonna let him. Uh, I'm gonna let him say it. Hey guys, it's Andrew Howell, otherwise known as a coma Jedi, and I had a quick question for the Order sixty six. Okay, I thumbed through the Force and Destiny book, and I, my question is concerning how do you sense a presence in the Force? Okay, um, can you suppress yourself, or can you try to see through someone else's suppression? I dove into the Force and Destiny book and reading the Seek Power, Misdirection, and all this kind of good stuff. And I see where it talks about trying to see through illusions, but what I'm more talking about is what we saw in the movies, okay, such as Vader sensed Obi-Wan on the Death Star. Was Obi-Wan trying to hide himself? Was he taunting Vader? But then, you know, later, of course, uh, you know, Palpatine is a Sith Lord in front of the entire Jedi Council, and I know in the uh, EU, sorry, the Legends, um, you know, they later explained how he was able to do that. But in the terms of the game, especially during the Age of the Rebellion, is there a way that Jedis can suppress their Force presence, or is it one of those things where the minute you step on a planet, you can go, ah, I sense X number of Force users? Anyway, just wanted to see if this could get answered. Thanks so much, and I can't listen to the Order 66 podcast because I'm too busy working on spouse rest. Thanks. <laughs> It's important to work on the spouse rep. Very importante. I may have to go work on my spouse rep a little bit right now. <laughs> well, not right now. I mean, i got to finish the show first. But <laughs> um, Solid question, Andrew. Uh, the book is not exactly rife with information or suggestions on the topic. Uh, page 291 gives us a little blurb on it with a sentence in a sidebar that sensing disturbances is how Force users are capable of detecting when he or she is in the presence of another force user. But what causes those disturbances? And what point, you know, how, how does it work? Um, there's also a talent in the shadows spec tree that gets, that is also related to this matter, Shroud. For a destiny point, the character can make himself undetectable via force powers and make sure his own powers go unnoticed for the remainder of the encounter. And if you ask me, Palpatine had Shroud. And he was spending destiny points like water yeah. whenever he was in the presence of a Jedi. Yeah, I, I would agree with that assessment. Also, he simply just wasn't using the Force. If you're not using the Force, now, and, and this will get into this a little bit later, if you're not using the Force and someone isn't familiar with you being a Force user, you should be okay. So now, given these two conditions, here's how I handle it. If a Force user is in the presence of someone who is Force-sensitive... They know someone strong in the Force is nearby. If the character uses any Force talents or any Force powers, other Force users will be able to detect and hone in on it. How far away someone can sense these depends on the character's strength in the Force, their Force rating, and how big a Force effect was generated. Now, activating a talent or a basic power is a small ripple may not allow the other Force user to zero in unless they ha they're in the same room, short to medium range. Uh, someone picking up an AT-AT with the Force, using battle meditation on an entire squad, or using heal to prevent someone from dying are huge ripples, huge disturbances in the Force, and may be detected from orbit by a strong Force user. Finally, familiarity should play a role as well. Vader knew Obi-Wan was on the Death Star, and that thing was about 150 kilometers in diameter. Kenobi used the Force in small, subtle ways to get through the Death Star to the tractor beam port, but even those ripples were felt by his former student, someone who was 
intimately familiar with Kenobi. They are connected at a soul level, those two. Exactly. Likewise, Luke's mere presence on the Tidarium shuttle was enough for Vader to sense in Jedi, and vice versa. But that may be more to do with the emotional and genetic bond between Luke and Vader. They also called on the Force a lot in their two previous encounters, the Death Star, Trench, and Bespin. So their mere presence in the Force was detectable by the other. That's true. Dude, when you first, like, when, when, like, when Vader first encounters Luke first forever in the Death Star Trench run, Luke is actively using the Force, right? Yes. He when he's, when he's piloting. He he's, he's doing it, and, it, and Vader's like, oh, wow, hey, he's using the Force. Force is strong with this one. Wow, okay. And then it has, you know, you could argue that it has a familiar flavor, so that when Vader fought him explicitly on Bezpin, they were using Force powers left and right. Vader got a huge dose of what Luke feels like in the Force. And at that point, he knew he was his son. He knew it. And there was that connection. that it, he, You could argue that a, a bond was formed between them right then and there. Yeah, I would agree. A, a bond as de- almost as deep, if not deeper, than the one between Vader and Kenobi. And that's how Vader was like, Luke's on that shuttle. And Luke was on the shuttle going, Vader's on that command ship. I shouldn't have come. (laughs) So active force use, familiarity, and personal connection are three ways you can judge when one force sensitive detects another. And these are just the these are just the 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 measuring sticks that I use in my games. And I I agree. Um, Everything that the films and and the canon have taught us about about force use and force detection is that it has everything to do with how strong of a force user you are, how much you're using the force familiarity and personal connection i mean okay you have these two the the two strongest force users of the jedi that were left after order 66 were yoda and kenobi they went to places (laughs) they they hid themselves on places where no imperial force user would ever go okay because they're so strong and they're so familiar with those imperial force users that they knew they could be detected at that point yeah um, so, I mean, that's, that, that's kind of it. Palps, obviously an incredibly powerful force user, but he didn't use the force and most likely had shroud in his arsenal. I mean, that's kind of yeah. where I'm going with it. And he, he, he killed almost everybody who knew pretty much. So, so yeah, man. But this is also a very good question for us to tackle with Sam Stewart on our next show. Uh, Andrew, if you haven't asked him in, through one of our question and answer threads, uh, we will try to work it in when we speak with him and get his thoughts on the matter. I highly encourage you to ask it in one of our question and answer threads, though. Please do. Please do. So there. Very good questions, everybody. Thank you very much. Well, it is time to end our show, and a lengthy show it has been. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know it's, it's past midnight where you are. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't have time for post-show today. So. It happens. We've had an excellent show, so it's all very good. Um, <clears throat> big thanks again, Gamer Nation, for tuning in, listening. I uh, hope you've gotten a lot out of this episode. Again, our next episode, as Phil just alluded to, is going to be on the 3rd of September. That is next Thursday night, 8 p.m. Central Standard Time, where we will deep dive into the Force and Destiny Core Rulebook with Mr. Sam Stewart. Get your questions in for it. You can head to the Order 66 boards at d20radio.com slash forums. You can head to the Force and Destiny core book boards on Fantasy Flight Games Forum. Get your question in. The cutoff date is the 27th of this month. That is, at this point, at the time of my voice speaking now, four days away. So 
get those questions in because we want to get them answered. Very exciting stuff. Very. It's all good. Guys, become a member of the Gamer Nation. Register on the forums if you haven't already. Post your mind. And leave us a liner. We have a lot in in backlog. <laughs> but still, leave us a liner. Give us a call. Tell us why you never listen to the Order 66 podcast. Phone us at 262-D20-RADIO. That's 262-320-7234. Or email us. GM Chris, GM Dave, GM Phil at D20Radio.com along with any other questions or quandaries you might have. And if you like what you're hearing and you want to support it, head to patreon.com slash d20radio. Just a couple bucks a month, you can support an awesome blog and an awesome podcast network, get our writers paid, and keep the lights on. We really do appreciate it. That we do. Well, folks, thank you again. This is GM Chris wishing you peace, love, and good gaming. And this is GM Phil. May the dice be with you. And related websites are not endorsed by Lucasfilm Limited, the Walt Disney Corporation, 20th Century Fox, or Fantasy Flight Games. It is intended for educational and informational purposes only. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, all names, pictures, or references to any Star Wars vehicles, characters, or other Star Wars related items are registered trademarks of Lucasfilm Limited, Fantasy Flight Games, or their respective trademark or copyright holders. All original content of this podcast, including any audio, visual, or textual information, is the intellectual property of the Order 66 podcast and the Gamer Nation LLC. (laughs) 